You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. One hundred thousand years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. Trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica, it could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen, but not to death. is the warmest place to hide. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again, after way too long, is El Goro from the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. You guys believe all this voodoo bullshit? Also back with me this week is Patrick Bromley of the F This Movie podcast. Thank you for having me back, Mike, if that's who you really are. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we're looking at John Carpenter's The Thing, released in the dead of summer of 1982. And anyone who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about movies set in the snow, and they should really be released in the winter. The Thing was initially lambasted by critics, but has since become one of the most beloved horror films of all time. Adapted from John W. Campbell's 1938 short story, Who Goes There? The film is the second adaptation of the source material, the first being Christian Nyby's 1951 The Thing from Another World, which was something of a Cold War metaphor, a very Cold War. While the updated version was less us versus them and more me versus everyone in that it played with the paranoia and uncanny. Of course, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen The Thing, be sure to check out the recent Blu-ray release of the film. I hear it is fantastic. So, El Goro, when was the first time you saw The Thing, and what did you think? First time I saw it, I think I was about 9 or 10, so it would have put it around 94, 95, just to date everybody listening to this, and myself. It was funny, the very first time that I became aware of it, I was looking through the TV guide. And I came upon a listing for The Thing. And as a big comic book fan that didn't know a lot, I just assumed that it was a film adaptation of the Fantastic Four's thing. And I was super excited because I'm really into the Fantastic Four and particularly The Thing. But my father soon set me right and then he promptly turned it over to that movie because he was a big fan. And thus my 9 and 10 year old brain was just completely melted by what I was being uh, forced to watch. Even edited for television, the power of the thing cannot be denied. And even though it scared the hell out of me, I fell in love with that movie. I watched it constantly growing up, especially as a teenager. And it ranks amongst one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Uh, Yeah, I think I saw it probably around a similar age. I was probably 
somewhere between eight and ten. And it was one of those movies that I caught super late on cable because my family would take one long car trip a year. We would drive up to Wisconsin or Missouri or something. And so that we would sleep in the car, my parents would allow us to stay up as late as we wanted the night before. So that was when I would binge on all the horror movies that I wasn't allowed to watch the rest of the time. So I remember that was the first time I encountered The Thing. And uh, just like you, El Goro, I, I completely fell in love with it. The, the uh, makeup effects, everything about it, I was completely transfixed. It was, I think, the movie that introduced me to Kurt Russell, which, of course, has become a lifelong love affair. And it is also one of my favorite, not just horror movies, but probably one of my favorite movies ever made. I also caught this one late at night on cable. Unfortunately, I didn't see the whole thing. I only saw the very end of it. I, I think right around the time the creature's in the hole and they're they're below Blair's shack, I think that's right around the time that I first started watching this. So I had maybe, what, a good 10 minutes seeing this movie? And I specifically remember the boards coming up and Kurt Russell running. And then, you know, for me, I was probably 12 or 13. So his whole... Oh my God, I can't believe he said that kind of thing. You know, a little puritanical Mike White running around here. But once I saw the creature, I was like, oh my God, what is this thing? It just took me by surprise. And I really couldn't get that image out of my mind for so many years. And it took me a little while to probably was like 16 by the time I finally sat down and watched it. And oh, wow. I mean, it has since become such a staple, especially this is the movie I always break out during that first goddamn week of winter. As soon as it starts to snow here in Michigan, I'm going to watch the thing. It just is perfect for a cold weather film. I've always been a big believer of if your movie is set in wintertime or there's a lot of snow, it's usually better to put it out around you know winter time but this thing came out june 1982 i think it was what a couple weeks after et came out and et was just dominating the box office which was strike one against this film people were holding it against this movie that it was a remake imagine that people being mad about <laughs> remakes that never happens mm-hmm. <laughs> and the critics just trashed this movie they just couldn't say enough bad things about it talking about the John Carpenter being basically a pornographer of violence. And now you watch and it's just like, this movie is so moody and wonderful in the way that it's paced and everything. And, you know, there's only just a few creature effects scenes and they're put in the perfect places. It's just amazing to think that this movie wasn't always a classic. So it's, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't even realize that it wasn't a classic until doing the research for this episode. I was like, wow, really? People didn't love this movie when it came out. It just took me by surprise. And it's interesting, at least when I found it, because there are certain horror films that I discovered later on that were have always held within the community or within the greater critical consensus as being classics. I mean, when I saw The Shining, when I saw The Exorcist, I was going in with the expectation that these were amongst the best horror movies ever made. And I can't help but wonder if my perceptions of them were colored by that. However, with The Thing, it was, a, it was a movie I experienced in a vacuum, and it more than lived up to the subsequent le- reputation that I discovered about it. That it's interesting that so many people have come to this movie 
and absolutely adore it. I mean, if you get into talks amongst the horror community about the greatest movies ever made in the horror genre or in John Carpenter's filmography in particular, the thing just rises to the top. And I just cannot understand the critical minds of 1982, why they would not latch on to something about this. Particularly since if you look at the construction of this film, as you were saying, the pacing and the characterizations of it, yes, it has some glorious special effects, some of the best ever committed to celluloid, but so much of this movie is just a couple of men in a room having conversations, having heated conversations, which feels so much of a piece with so many 70s horror films that were so celebrated Celebrated during this period that it's like they couldn't see past the latex to see the true heart of this film. And I have a theory, too, because as I was watching it again in preparation for this podcast, I, I was wondering the same thing. How was it that this movie was rejected at the time? And uh, like you said, Mike, I'm sure it has something to do with E.T. and we want our aliens, you know, friendly and eating candy. Um, I'm sure it has something to do with Ronald Reagan, America, that was just kind of finding its foothold. I truly think, and this is not to shit talk critics and people have their opinions and, and I can't tell them that, that they're wrong for having those opinions. I truly think that this movie affected a lot of critics in ways that they were not prepared for. I think this movie rocked them in a way that they just couldn't process and so thought it was bad. They called it ugly and pornographic instead of understanding that, no, no, this movie is unsettling you in a way that a movie hasn't in a really long time or maybe ever. And I think there was some confusion about processing those emotions. And I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, kind of why that is in terms of some of what the movie, the effect that the movie has on the viewer. But I really think that some of the response was, you know, oh my gosh, I've never seen things this gross and and goopy on screen before. But I also have to believe that some of it was, oh, this movie is touching me in a way that I don't like to be touched. And my, my, my response is to reject it. I also wonder if this film had been made by somebody who, other than Carpenter, how it would have been received. I mean, if William Friedkin had made this film, would the critics have been kinder? Because while Carpenter had experienced a great deal of success with Halloween and, you know, had followed it up, at least amongst our circles, with great films like The Fog and Escape from New York, he, I believe at this time he would have still had that reputation, one that he carries to this day as a genre director. And I wonder if that title was enough to sour some critical opinion against him. I wouldn't be surprised, and there's also that whole idea of this guy has been very successful with all of these early films. It's time for us to take him down a notch. You know, you could have a fantastic movie that sometimes is just like, nope, this guy's had a good run. It's time to find fault, and let's just tear this person down. And this was also his first uh, major studio movie, too, so now he's working on kind of a larger platform quote unquote more mainstream because it has the you know universal at the front of it and maybe that played a role into it too i don't know it's interesting to read about the making of the film and find out that this movie was really shaped in the editing room there was a lot of stuff that changed as it was made i know we'll get into that as we go along here but just to think that this was the film that carpenter had the most prep time on i think maybe of all of his films and then also had a lot of time when it came to reshoots and shaping this thing and really punching it up so to me it feels like it's really a 
perfected film. It feels like there's a there, there are a couple of things where it's just like, well, maybe you know, it's questionable that we don't see Nalls and Fuchs' death, but at the same time, it's like I love that ambiguity, mm-hmm. and I know we'll talk about the ending and and ambiguity, but. I think the other thing that really plays into this is people hated the ending and they wanted a bow on this and it doesn't end with a bow. And I think that really made a lot of people angry. Oh, unto this day. I mean, it seems like every year we get a now new definitive proof of who, of what the ending of the thing was, you know? I know. And it just pisses me off every single time. It's like, why? Why do you have to say, why do you have to prove what was going on? It's kind of like that whole thing of, you really have to prove to me that Decker was a replicant. Can I have it both ways? Can I think of it? What if he really was a replicant? And what if he wasn't a replicant? Wow, that's that's crazy. I can actually hold those two diametrically opposed ideas in my mind at the same time. I don't need you to spell it out for me, Ridley Scott. You don't need to come back in here and put a fucking unicorn in the stream. You know, that it's okay. It's all right. Um, two things. One, speaking of Blade Runner, that movie came out the same day as The Thing. That's how spoiled we were in 1982. And both were kind of rejected, you know, at the time commercially and have since gone on to become two of the best loved uh, genre movies of all time and and for good reason but also in trying to do some research for this show almost everything i would you know google search would the first thing that would it would land me on would be you know the ending of the thing who's the thing at the end is child's the thing and i don't understand the search for that answer and on what planet would having the answer make this a better movie if carpenter came out tomorrow and said yep child's was the thing I think there would be some people who just felt good about having an answer, but then as soon as they had that answer, in no way does it make it a better movie at all, because then you have to ask the question of, well, then why didn't McCready, you know, kill him or whatever? So it's just this need to have, like you guys said, some sort of closure for the sake of having closure. I mean, it would not improve the movie at all and, and, and would make it a lesser film. Well, in some cases, at least in the ca- in the case of some of my friends, it's that desire for more. It's the idea that it, with a definitive answer, it leaves it open for more stories. And over the years, they have done various continuations to the plot, whether it be through Dark Horse's original comic book series or the video game that came out in the 2000s. So there is an impulse among certain geeks to not want to the story to end with the credits they want to continue on with this world and in some ways it's you know it's really a testament to the film that as superb as it was it just leaves the audience wanting more that comic series is hilarious to me i mean just it it takes us all over the place there was one version of the comic that i didn't really mind and it was where mccready visits what new zealand Mm -hmm. right but then there was another one where he ends up oh gosh it's it's more stuff on the ice and he keeps running into childs and all this stuff and mccready just keeps getting knocked out it it felt like like freaking philip marlowe and murder my sweet it was like every few minutes he was he was going Going under and then waking up in a new place and you're like, okay, well, was he infected at that point? Was he not? And then here's this new group and who's infected and who's not. And and after a while, I was just like, okay, enough. There was it was funny because there were 
moments in some of these sequel comics that really felt a lot to me like some of the rejected ideas for the Alien 3 script because there was a, a whole thing where he's in South America and there are all these sheep and the sheep end up turning into this huge thing creature and then it also absorbs a man so it's like part man part multi-sheep kind of thing and I was just like wow okay this feels like the Eric Red script for Alien 3 which was rejected for a good reason but here I am reading the comic form of it it almost felt like and it was just like ah, enough you know just I don't need the further adventures of McCready I'm fine picturing him there in the ice and maybe he freezes to death that's okay but for me. Yeah. See, I, I hold the, I have a certain amount of affection for those comic books because after I'd seen the movie, I, you know, as an eight-year-old kid, I did want to know more. While I didn't always have access to horror films except when I was left unattended at my father's place, my parents were very liberal of what comic books I could pick up because they were still presuming that I was reading under the safety of the Comics Code Authority, which didn't extend to Dark Horse comics, but they didn't know that. So I was always picking up, you know, alien comic books, predator comic books, and the thing comic books. And even into this day, it's weird that I keep reconnecting with the thing comic books because a friend of mine has a project where he's turning those into motion comics. And he's called me in a few times to voice some of the characters. And yes, going through and actually saying the dialogue in them, you could tell just how clunky a lot of it is and just how ridiculous it is. But it's tinged with such nostalgia for that period of comic book creation that I can't help but love it. But at no time will I defend them as being good stories, just satisfying ones. The New Zealand one I was actually pretty good with. It was almost more like a it was almost more of a vampire story than anything. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I like about the thing, the creature, is just that he, it can play so many different roles. You know, it, it is an alien. It is a disease almost. There are so many different ways that you can look at the creature of the thing. And it's, you know, of course, I was thinking a lot of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know, you're replaced with this creature. Do you know if you've been replaced? Does anybody else know that you've been replaced? And of course, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. But I, first, we should probably get into the movie proper a little bit. The opening for the thing sets the tone so well. I love these Typical John Carpenter font. Uh, I I can't remember which font face it is, but uh, comes up and we've got these opening credits with absolutely no noise, completely silent to the point where today when I was rewatching, I was like, wait a second, is is this right? And I'm like, turn it up the volume all the way. (laughs) So then when the the ship comes onto the screen or when the titles burn in, I was just like, oh shit, yeah, this is really loud now. And yeah, the the spaceship coming in and crashing on Earth and then the titles burning in and then that opening Antarctica 1982 and that Morricone score. And I'm sure, like, when we were doing research a few weeks ago for the Shining episode, people have written pages and pages and pages about the different music that was used in the Shining. 
And I'm surprised I didn't run across anything talking about this Morricone score for the thing. Just because the way, and I know that I'm not a musician, I know that I can't really describe it that well, but the way that Morricone uses the repetition of these notes, you know, of course, it's very reminiscent of a heartbeat coming in. And just the way that we kind of go up and down at the same time with these scales. And it seems like every time there's a, a, a higher note, the low note is there. And it just kind of constantly reminds me of like the struggle between the human and the alien with the score. And it's just like, oh, my God, you know, from from, from word one. This movie has me and takes me into this other place. And then with that second opening of the dog running across the the snow, one of the most visually striking, immediately we're asking questions. What's going on with this? What is going on with the helicopter? Why are these guys shooting at this dog? And just draws me right into this story and never lets me go. Oh, definitely. And it is interesting that if... You compare this Morricone score to almost anything else that he's composed. It is so unlike anything that he's previously worked on, at least that I've been exposed to. You know, he he has always been the master of the theme, but this very minimalist approach, this very John Carpenter approach, it speaks to a close collaboration between the two of them. And it's it's curious to me why Carpenter would have gotten Morricone to do a score that Carpenter easily could have done himself. You know, when you listen to, I think it's Humanity Part 2, which is the main theme to the thing during that opening sequence, that heartbeat sequence, it has all the hallmarks of a good John Carpenter theme. The repetitive uh, uh, melody that comes in, and then you start layering things on top of it, slowly building up. That's kind of the way he writes music. And it's curious that, again, why they would have had reached out to Morricone. It may have just been Carpenter wanting to work with a guy he admired. It may have just been the st- the fact that Carpenter's working in a studio and he had a lot of other things to worry about, so he didn't want to deal with the score. But even though this is a Morricone score, it has all the hallmarks of a Carpenter score. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I would have said the exact same thing as listening to it, and I do love the score. And the story I heard was just that Carpenter... You know, the studio didn't talk to him about writing a score, so he didn't really think about it. And then the opportunity came to get Morricone. But it does sound so much like a Carpenter score to its credit. And I I just think it's so, so great. And Mike, you were kind of talking about the way that opening shot comes up. And I was revisiting the film today and really paying attention to certain elements. And even the very first shot, before we see the dog, before we see the helicopter, we just get this shot of kind of the snowy, you know, Antarctic landscape. And I was struck by, and I'm I'm probably overreaching here, so let me just throw that out, that it is a handheld shot. And Carpenter is so known, even at this point, for his sort of steady cam, widescreen, you know, two, three, five compositions perfectly symmetrical and in balance and kind of very slow and methodical the way he moves the camera. And he opens this film with a handheld shot that's kind of shaking back and forth. And some of that, you know, I'm sure it was just necessity shooting outside in the freezing cold and everything. But the impact that it had on me, even as someone who has seen this movie dozens of times, was that right away we get the sense of something being off balance, right? That if, if, if the film opens on one of his sort of traditional perfectly framed Steadicam shots that uh, we have a world that, that, um, that there, to which there is order. And yet this starts with this kind of just, it's just shaking, rocking back and forth a little bit. This idea that 
something is off kilter. And, and I don't know if you have to be a Carpenter fan to recognize that, uh, to know the way that it differs from his usual photography, or if that's something that even uh, a, a newcomer would pick up. But that's what was striking me about it today. That's a really good point. And especially because we get those moments of that kind of gliding camera, especially when we're in camp and we're following along that dog later on in the story, that's very much that kind of silent observer. You know, it's not nearly as much as like the, you know, the steady cam use in the Overlook Hotel and The Shining, but we definitely get that kind of idea of this observer telling, you know, showing us what's happening with this story kind of thing. Whereas with that opening shot of the thing being handheld, if there is, if we are taking a POV from an observer, it's definitely uh, an organic observer. It's not something that is mechanical, something that is locked down. So it's, it was a really good point with that. And one of the other things that at least struck me is I was trying to think of the last time, and I was racking my mind through Carpenter's filmography, when he was able to pull off what I like to call big country shots. Because Carpenter, by his own admission, got into filmmaking in order to make westerns. And he's mentioned, of course, the works of Howard Hawks and John Ford. And one of the things that, you know, when you look dig into that genre is those, those big panoramic widescreen shots of country. And can you think of another film that he did outside of The Thing where he was able to kind of indulge in that? Because this almost felt like this opening in Antarctica, yes, it had that handheld, but you really did get the sense of the landscape and just how overpowering it was. And that's, it was punched in even more when we saw that the diminutive dog. I think he tries to do a little bit of it in a movie that I'm not crazy about, and that's his remake of Village of the Damned. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, in the opening, he's trying to do some of it, but it doesn't have any of the same kind of thematic weight that it does here, as you said, where it's trying to sort of underline the point, you know, of what a kind of a small little speck humanity is inside of this vast white snowscape. In the thing, it really is to a point, and in Village of the Damned, I think it's like Carpenter trying to enjoy himself making a movie that he wasn't totally invested in. That's entirely possible. He was filming in a very pretty environment, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it is very much like a Western when you think of the whole idea of them, the the men being in town and the dog coming to them and the men in the helicopter coming to them and just kind of kicking off this story. And, you know, it's almost like when McCready and Copper go visit the other camp, it's almost like that scene from, I think it's the searchers or other people might remember it from star Wars going back to uncle Ben and, and, and Peru and seeing the charred bodies. I mean, that's very similar to me as far as the investigation that takes them back to the homestead and see the destruction that the Indians have caused, or in that case, the the alleged sand people, but we all know, you know, that the sand people didn't do it. So that's what Alex Jones uh, <laughs> revealed on one of his shows, that he has definitive proof that sand people travel in a single file, whereas, anyway. Info Star Wars. Sand people's lives matter, yes. <laughs> so... But yeah, you can definitely see that, and and especially to think that McCready is this kind of reluctant sheriff. You know, he definitely has it thrust upon him. I love that he is just this. Kurt Russell even described his character as like, yeah, I'm just kind of this everyman, and I'm like, yeah, you you are, but 
at the same time, you are elevated above everybody else in camp. You do have this logical mind. You do have this uh, demeanor. You know, they don't want to give the, uh, the the leadership position at one point to, to Childs because he, he's not as even-tempered as McCready is. But I love that when we first see him, he's there playing this chess game and, you know, kind of setting up that he does have this logical mind to him but then when he loses he ends up kind of throwing a little fit and pouring the drink inside of the chess game but it if you look at that and then you look at the end of the film and you see you know the black and white pieces and then we've got mccready and childs at the very end kind of opposed it's just like okay that's an that's a nice echo to me to have this chess game and really so much of the movie is a chess game between the creature and McCready or the creature and the men. And I, I think I, I would be off if I said that, you know, that you could do some sort of a metaphor between the number of men and the number of pieces, you know, that you start off with in a chess game. I think that's 16 and there's 12 of these guys. So of course I'm looking at a, you know, a, a Christ metaphor somewhere in here. <laughs> well, and it's, it's, it is interesting that, you know, we, we talk about McCready as the everyman. He seems to fit into that very comfortable carpenter mold of the hero, many of which were played by Kurt Russell. But it's, it's what's fascinating to me through, in doing the research, particularly the materials you provided with me, was the fact that that was not originally the intent, that this was intended to be a much more balanced ensemble piece. And a lot of those scenes that sort of flesh out McCready as much more of the dedicated protagonist of, of this film came, came in post-production, where they had, a, had assembled a cut of the film and then realized just something wasn't working. And it, it, it's interesting that Carpenter would have held off establishing a protagonist so late into the production of the film. It almost feels like he was denying some of his own instincts as a filmmaker. Now, granted, he's worked on ensemble pieces before. The Fog could it could be argued as largely an ensemble piece, even though the ensemble is pretty well scattered. And Assault on Precinct 13, it's, it, it spares or shares out. But when you start looking at films like Escape from New York or it, basically anything that Kurt Russell was, you could tell a lot of his creative energy is towards building narratives around that that figure that man who comes to town or the man that's got to fix things it's a very western kind of conceit and i don't know if it was just something that he didn't realize that's what he wanted to do or if maybe he was thinking well this is a studio picture i got to try something different I wonder, too, if any of it has to do with not sort of wanting to tip his hand in terms of telling us for sure one guy is not the thing. You know, by by ostensibly making McCready the lead or the hero, we kind of feel safe that like, OK, this guy is our, our human surrogate and he's going to get us through this. And so the movie does get us to question a little bit whether or not he is the thing during that sequence where he gets locked out. But for the most part, we know through the whole movie that he's not the thing. And so I wonder if Carpenter was maybe trying to obscure that a little bit more. But I want to just quickly go back to the chess scene too, Mike, because you were talking about the chess scene sort of as this metaphor. And again, as I was watching it today, I was like, yes, this scene is a metaphor for the entire movie, right? In terms of McCready's character, because it's entirely about him trying trying to if if chess is the stand in for the thing it's just him trying to sort of outsmart this perfect organism this thing that exists just to think and win essentially and when he can't 
his solution is just to fucking burn it down, you know, <laughs> like right. blow it up, throw his drink in there, whatever that like the entire movie sort of plays out watching his eyes and the way he's thinking and watching the way uh, the realization comes in that like, oh, I'm actually not maybe in control the way I thought I was. And then the choice that he makes to like, well, then if I can't win, then I'm taking this whole thing down. The way that scene plays out, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's the whole movie in a nutshell. I just thought that was really cool. I'm, and I'm sure it's been analyzed under a feminist perspective that the sole feminine figure <laughs> in this movie, the voice of that uh, computer uh, chess machine, which that was Adrian Barbeau, if I remember correctly, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. That it, it isn't until he destroys that that everything goes to hell. She's a bitch. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so many times where you can see the thing as being the monstrous female, especially, you know, even when it kind of adopts that whole idea of the, the uh, Rob Bottin call it the cabbage from hell. Oh, yes. You know, the flower opening up and everything. It's just like, wow, you really can't get much more sexual imagery than that. And then, of course, it's the only thing that's out there giving birth, whereas everything else is destroying. Right. But And two, when you're talking about the uh, opening mirroring the, the ending there, it's no small coincidence, I think, that he's got his bottle of J&B at the beginning and at the end. I mean, the man has his priorities, and J&B is definitely one of them. I thought I was watching a sleazy European movie for, for a second. <laughs> that was supposedly one of the character traits that Kurt Russell was kind of trying to build into this, was that McCready was essentially an alcoholic. And you could see traces of it, maybe, throughout the film, including the fact that he's carrying that bottle around, but for the most part, that seems to have kind of gone by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah, there was that whole idea of him having a backstory where he was a pilot in Vietnam, a helicopter pilot, and that really fucked him up. And so now he's out here, you know, escaping from the world. And it's nice that the opening, the opening of uh, Bill Lancaster's screenplay, he goes through and gives little characterizations of all these different people, all these different characters, and so many of them are just like wanting to escape from the rest of the world, and that's how they all end up in this Antarctic location. Now, I'm still trying to figure out what job Childs had. Uh, he was allegedly, he was the mechanic. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was Parker. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Parker is the other pilot. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Palmer. 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 Yeah. 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 Not Parker. Yeah, he was the other uh pilot. That's why he offers right. to take Copper over to the the Norwegian's camp. Which right. makes sense. Child's definitely got the shit end of the stick <laughs> when it came to him having a lot of more things to do. Like there's this whole thing. So we'll we'll talk about it as we go along, but you know, Fuchs the first time he he died, you know, we we actually see his death in one version of of the film uh that was cut out, which was him having the shovel shoved through him and he's you know, stuck to a door and that was the door of the greenhouse and that's the greenhouse where Childs has this whole grow uh, operation where he grows all of the marijuana that you see them smoking copiously through the movie so he had this whole thing about the plants and then there's one part where it's like the plants could have become the thing as well if it's you know it's organic matter it could become anything well, that, which means we were denied uh, a sequel about Killer Weed uh, produced by Charles Band. Yeah, and that fit right into that Reagan-era stuff that you were talking yeah, about. Right. That, was, that was all Nancy Reagan, just say no, because the Killer Weed will get you. 
I'm glad that they have cut the cast down to 12 people. You know, I did make mention of the 12 disciple kind of thing, but because the original short story had 37 different guys. Oh, God, so yeah. it, we definitely uh, <laughs> get to know these people a little bit more. And I have to say all of the guys in this camp, and I love the way that we're introduced to all of these people and just that even – you know, I'm trying to remember if it's uh, uh, Benning who's who gets it first or who it is, but we get to know all of these guys, and they're just all very, very strong. Even though they're not giving us a whole lot, you know, we don't know much of their backstory. We don't necessarily know that McCready was a Vietnam pilot. I mean, we just kind of are with these people and there's not a whole lot of like oh back in the states i did this that and the other thing we just accept them for who they are and yet they are still very very well drawn characters yeah and i think a lot of that is due to the fact that carpenter allowed the cast to sort of define their own dynamics as a group so when you get these guys that have been working together, when they've been rehearsing together and they've been allowed the freedom to just kind of come up with their relationship, then it it suggests a lot of nonverbals. You know, when we get the early scenes with them, we may not get a very strong sense of who they are as individuals, but we do get a very strong sense of how they interact as a group. And I think that's a solid foundation to build this sort of sort of story. There are traces of it throughout the film and a, a lesser movie, I think, would have to stop and have a dialogue scene where we find out exactly what their dynamic is. And we understand. And this movie just kind of lets it exist, sometimes even in the background. And it really gives you a sense not just of who the characters are, but of their predicament in terms of how long they've been out here in terms of the fact that they only have each other. And so some of the tension is, exists just because, you know, they're stuck out there with one another. And then it's exacerbated a million times by the arrival of, you know, this alien. It, 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 it's so kind of subtly put in there that it just feels completely organic, for lack of a better word. And as you said, yeah, it comes out of the actors just being comfortable with one another and kind of establishing that themselves. It's really, really cool. I had to look up what the word buana meant. I so never I. really heard that very often. And I love how uh, both uh, Nalls and Childs use buana when they're talking to these white guys, just kind of like, you know, giving them a good old F you, which I really appreciated. And it's also curious that they didn't set up um, Nalls and Childs as being, you know, friends just by virtue of the fact that they're the two only black guys in it. That they didn't think, well, obviously they would hang out together. No, they, they just kind of – they were just another part of the group. And the only time we see Childs hanging out with anybody, he's, hang, he's smoking a joint and uh, watching television shows with Palmer. Yeah, you would think that these days they would have a uh, you know a little interchange, being like, "Oh, these white people be crazy," right. but luckily they don't have that. And I got to say, I love fucking Palmer. He is so amazing. <laughs> Happens all the time, man. They're falling out of the skies like flies. Government knows all about it, right, Mac? Chariots of the gods, man. They practically own South America. I mean, they taught the Incas everything they know. Just this stoner dumbass guy just content to be down there be high all the time i mean almost every time we see him he's smoking a joint and in a movie of some really terrific albeit you know often minimalist dialogue he gets the line of the movie right you gotta be fucking kidding 
Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> I think between him and Clark and Clark's... I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. God, so good. Yeah, and what I thought it was great the way that uh, Masur approached Clark. You know, you really get the sense that he does not belong with these other men. That he's interacting with them, but he emotes and he performs much like his dogs do. You know, he's very understated. He doesn't uh, make himself uh, known except when he has something to say. Uh, he's one step removed from everybody, which, of course, adds to the tension later because he is the biggest red herring in the entire uh, movie. Yeah, and we should know that these red herrings aren't going to work out because between him and McCready, because McCready is the second biggest red herring because they we're constantly finding McCready's clothes. And it's this whole thing of, you know, the alien shreds clothes when it, it, it makes its change. And both Fuchs and Nulls find McCready clothes. And it's just. You know, so we're there, you know, also kind of doubting, but at the same time, we don't want to doubt because he is our hero. He is our protagonist by that point, but we're getting conflicting information and we're getting that same kind of information about Clark. I mean, to the point where one of my favorite lines in the movie, and it's a dumb line to be one of my favorite lines, but probably because I went to school with a guy named Clark is when, <laughs> when, um, uh, Blair does his whole, I said, watch Clark and watch him close. Do you hear me? Every time I see that scene, I have to laugh for some reason, but I love the way that he says that. And that little interaction between him and, and, and McCready, that whole... I don't know who to trust. I know what you mean, Blair. Trust's a tough thing to come by these days. Tell you what, why don't you just trust in the Lord? So good, and I love Wilford Brimley just fucking owns this movie, man. Every time he's on screen, and really, for a lot of the, the beginning part of the movie, he's kind of our protagonist, and we're following his story, especially giving us that scene of him figuring out how long it's going to take for the thing to infect the rest of the world and his reaction to that. I mean, really, he's our hero for quite a bit of this. Until he has that truly epic meltdown scene that uh, provided me with one of my favorite lines, or at least the line deliveries in this movie. I'll kill you! My friends and I, we would just randomly yell that at each other because we found it so hilarious. (laughs) He wanted to be us! (laughs) (laughs) But again, the greatness of that scene is he's freaking out, he's being violent, he's dangerous, he's destroying the equipment, right? But he's right. He's the one who's right. He's completely right. That's the genius of that scene. And my my favorite Wilfred Brimley scene, not to jump ahead, but my favorite Wilfred Brimley scene is the next time that McCready goes out to see him and I don't think I'm supposed to laugh, but I cannot help but laugh every single time I watch it when he's like, I want to come back in now. I'm better now. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to harm anybody. Just I want to come back in. noose hanging by his head. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. <laughs> Just the way he delivers one of the lines, like, hey, wait a minute, man. It's like, what? Is, is Brimley stoned? I'm all right. I'm much better. And I won't harm anybody. That's when the thing I think t- uh, took Blair over. Then that's why it's trying to convince him to let him back inside. Yeah, I was thinking that, and then I, it was also curious to me that before he leaves, McCready takes a slug of that bottle and then gives it to Blair. And I'm just like, I don't think Blair 
would trust anything from anybody. You know, they make Fuchs makes mention of like we should only eat canned foods, and I'm just like, man, Blair is so paranoid that would he ever drink from that bottle? Is he of the mind that you know, and he should be that any piece can take him over. So even just a little bit of saliva is going to do him damage. Let me ask you guys a question. And this is probably where I out myself as a real dummy. Um, (laughs) But you had mentioned the scene with McCready and Blair when he's saying, you know, trust is hard to come by these days. Um, Later on, when we get the scene of McCready where he's making the recording and he's going to hide it, he goes back and erases the moment where he says, nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. Why does he erase that? I think he's afraid that people are going to find that recording. Somebody at camp is going to find that recording and kind of think that he is untrustworthy. That's what I think of it anyway. Okay. Yeah, and it, 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 it just kind of struck me that it was, it was a moment of vulnerability from him, you know, especially when he said, and we're all very tired, and he just didn't want to reveal that. It was too personal. A guy who's used to being by himself, a guy who's used to kind of used to, why well, I presume, bottling up his emotions or uh, dealing with them with a bottle, he didn't want that to get out. It was just too personal. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I don't necessarily think that this movie was made with the AIDS crisis in mind. I mean, the, the AIDS crisis really kind of broke 1981. This movie's coming out in 1982, but yet the source novel is 19, or the source story is 1938. Mm-hmm. And we've seen over the years how the story has kind of changed of, you know, the uh, Cold War thing from for the 1951 movie version of it. And then with this one, you know, I, I was seeing it more of kind of that, it's it's really kind of more the individual versus the team kind of idea, and I'm I'm almost thinking that there is this more like Reagan era uh, metaphor happening here as far as every man for himself, but really we should work together as a team. You know, what is the thing but a uh, an organism that's made up of other organisms you know every single drop of blood is an organism and it really doesn't know how to work as a team you know when we do that blood test the blood is what betrays the thing whereas these men have to learn to work together in order to try to defeat it but at the same time it is 1982 that this is coming out and we are kind of in the midst of the AIDS crisis starting and really when I was young and going through the uh you know the litany of of age training that they gave us unfortunately it wasn't until like 1987 i think is when finally it was aids was being taught in schools so imagine that five-year gap i mean it's easy to imagine with reagan being our president that there was that gap in education but when uh AIDS was first coming out, I mean, people did believe that a sneeze could transmit it, a kiss could transmit it, you know, any any sort of thing with blood could transmit it. So the idea of just one tiny piece of the thing being able to infect you is right in line with those early days of what people thought HIV and AIDS was capable of as far as being transmitted almost airborne. I mean, there were people who really believed that it was an airborne disease. 
Yeah, and whether that was the authorial intent of the film, whether it be from the the script writers or Carpenter, it's difficult to say. I mean, I've definitely heard that analysis applied into it, you know, uh, kind of looking back. But I'm not sure if that was necessarily their intent, but it is rather evocative to see. And it could just be a thing that it's, you know, it's speaking to those sorts of concerns that even if it was unspoken, there was still that knowledge that something was happening, something was going around. And even if it wasn't meant to imply specifically AIDS, that imagery of the contagion of something from outside taking you from within. You know, it, it, it speaks to something like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or any of those other sort of body horror type movies of which, you know, I by this point, Cronenberg was in full swing with his stuff. So I don't know. I don't think that it was deliberately meant to evoke AIDS, but it certainly fits into that sort of analysis. And I think, again, because of the you know blood test scene specifically, which a lot of people point out is kind of the greatest scene in the movie. That's the reason that I think AIDS gets brought up a lot because of the period and because they're specifically testing blood. I think it could certainly be read that way, but it's, you know, Carpenter, uh, one of his primary concerns or themes as a filmmaker is paranoia or <clears throat> what is hiding in plain sight, right? So he makes... Uh, the thing being the best example, but Prince of Darkness is about this thing that spreads around to people and you not, you're not sure, is this my friend or coworker or is this person infected by the green devil liquid, vampires, ghosts of Mars, uh, they, they live. live, right? I mean, it's it, it, where everything, it's all about what's hiding inside the person and not necessarily revealing itself externally, you know, to even to some extent village of the damned in a way um, it's specifically about the kids and they're a little easier to spot because of the whole hair and eyes thing. But that throughout his career, he keeps coming back to this idea of this thing that is passed along from person to person and infects them from the inside out and makes them untrustworthy or, you know, makes us increasingly paranoid about our fellow human being, whether or not they are still human after all. I want to talk a little bit about the scares, the creature effects, especially. I mean, one of the things that really upsets me is when I'm talking about this movie with one of my coworkers who's probably 20 years younger than I am. And whenever I say, you know, John Carpenter's a thing, he's like, oh, is that the one with the really bad special effects? <laughs> and I just want to kind of throttle him, you know, because <laughs> I'm just like, these effects today are still better than so many things that I see coming out, you know, at the movies right now. Oh, certainly. You know, just that it was real, that it was present, that there were things that people were reacting to. It's wonderful. And some of the, the effects in here just, they blow my mind. And, and the, the work that went into this and to see the craftsmanship and just the way that they filmed some of this stuff. I mean, the first time we really see the thing in action, the dog scene, the kennel scene, OMG, it is just wonderful, especially to see the way that they lit it with the flashlights and everything going over the creature, so you never really get the full picture of it, but what you see is just absolutely horrific. There's a reason that this is still held as the gold standard of practical creature effects, and it's sad that technology has improved by leaps and bounds since 1982, as technology is wanted to. And it is totally possible 
for people working today in practical fields to equal or exceed what is going on in the thing. But for reasons of expediency, for reasons of control in that editing room, and especially all of that control that a digital effect can give you, that not very often are people given the time and the money to try to top these these sorts of effects. And this, much like um, Rick Baker had b- both time and money to pull off the incredible transformation in American Werewolf in London, th- uh, Botine was able to pull off incredible, incredible things because he had the freedom to do so. There's literally a one-to-one example of this where, you know, we have the modern day, quote-unquote, remake, prequel, whatever, of the thing that uses CG effects, and it's nowhere near as effective as what they were doing practically in 1982. These are still my favorite uh, practical special effects of all time. I still think they're, they've never been topped, and no matter how many times I watch it, it never loses its power for me because there's always something new to look at there's always something new to see and it's for me the closest that there's ever been of a cinematic representation of kind of what Lovecraft talks about where he talks about you know the unspeakable the unknowable these things where what Rob Bottin puts on screen like you can't even wrap your head around what you are seeing and the fact that this sprang from someone's imagination and then he was afforded the luxury at 22 years old by the way which I've just wasted my life um, right <laughs> the fact that he was able to realize that and bring it to screen so effectively and you know credit to Dean Cundy for the way he lights it and shoots it credit especially to the sound design as, as I was watching the film today with the sound turned way up I was like oh my gosh the sound is doing half the job here because because it is unreal that just so many weird, gross noises, the way that all of that is realized on screen just for me has never been topped. Well, you want to talk about sound. I mean, the the Bennings transformation, really, when he's out in the snow and he's got the thing hands, it's whatever. It's gloves. You know, it's, it's no big deal, you know, but it, it looks fantastic. But then it's the moment that he turns and opens his mouth doing this kind of Edvard Monk kind of scream and just that otherworldly noise comes roaring out of him. The gurgling, you know, you're talking about these transformations and just hearing this kind of growling and gurgling and the wet noises, you know, looking at the thing when it's in the kennel and you just see the stuff dripping off of it. But then, yeah, you hear that noise and it's just, oh, you know, it's so stomach turning. You'll never forget the roar of that thing creature. It's just so indelible and, and so beautifully rendered i mean it's right up there to me as far as great sounds go it's right up there with like godzilla's roar it's one of those like if i hear that noise any place i immediately would know exactly what it's from and then the use of the insect noises as well like some of those when it's um uh, it's starting to do its transformation inside of the kennel and it's kind of like these I don't know, like cicadas yeah. from hell mm-hmm. kind of thing. Just beautiful, beautiful stuff. Top to bottom, those sequences, they they haven't been touched. And it's absolutely superb to watch. And it, it does blow my mind that anybody could look at those and not see the incredible craft that went into them. And I wonder if it's just because 
when you're dealing with the practical effects, there is going to be a slight remove from, you know, photorealistic reality. That thought that those things are anything but brilliant and beautiful in their very grotesque way is so alien to me that I, I just can't understand it. Who's the person that thinks up Norris's head escaping from the table, using that <laughs> tendril tongue to pull itself over into hiding, spring those spider legs from it, grow two eyes from stalks from it, and then still be growling with the Norse head mouth and skittering across the floor? Oh, my God. It, it never stops surprising you. And again, no matter how many times I've seen the movie, it never stops surprising me. There have been great alien designs in the past. Think of the Xenomorph in Ridley Scott's Alien, right? Incredible H.R. Giger design. Amazing. But every time it's on screen, it looks the same. It's super cool. I'm not knocking that alien at all. But this thing is never the same twice. It just keeps finding ways to reinvent itself. I mean, both within the plot and within Rob Boutin's imagination. Every time he shows it, he's showing you something different, some new insane design of things it has assimilated, of half-formed uh, creations and ideas. Even when it's not moving and, 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 and transforming in front of us, I think of like the autopsy scene. Uh, with Blair, where you have this disgusting thing on the table. I mean, it's so gross. And he cuts it open and pulls out something even grosser, (laughs) where it's like, how is this movie doing this? Yep. The split face creature or design of the the creature that was stopped mid-transformation. I mean, what an amazing image that is. And just, oh, God, that that would give you nightmares just by itself. But oh, looks yes. like a beautiful sculpture, you know? I mean, it's so the way it is created is gorgeous. Yeah, and it's interesting because as we watch it, we never really get a strong sense of the dimensions of this thing that they're cutting open. You know, we're just right. we're just afforded little glimpses of it. And every time we see it, it's like, how does it It has to fit all together, all together. But we just can't see. And it's if you want to sell the alien nature of the thing, you ne- you you can't do much better than those those sequences, those autopsy scenes. Yeah, him snapping off the <laughs> the, the kick crab legs. Oh God, that is amazing! And the, again, the sound design on that, even the sound design when the needle goes into the blood, mm-hmm. and especially when you hear it, the needle against the glass on the bottom of the petri dish. I have so much admiration for that scene. For years, uh, I would admire it because I would forget which was the uh, blood that was going to pop. And it would make me mm. jump. But now as I go back and watch it, I have such admiration for it f- by virtue of the way that that scene was constructed. Because you can – if you you know pause it, if you really dig deep, you can see how they accomplish the effect. It's a fake hand holding the uh, sample tray and that's the gimmick that they're going to use in order to throw up the, the effect of the blood trying to escape. But the brilliance that Carpenter did, whether it was Carpenter's decision or whether it was Botine's input or what have you, is that they introduced that prosthetic early in order to get our eye accustomed to it. And they set up a false scare. So we have this fake hand in front, and then he puts down the heated needle, and it's safe. So our eye has already been accustomed to, okay, that's fine. Because so many times when you're watching a horror movie, if you're paying attention, especially during this period, you could tell when something was about to happen because you could see the prosthetic uh, introduced. 
And with this, they introduce it early. Our mind doesn't catch it because we're still caught up in the tension of the scene. Then when it comes up and it's going to pop and they're still cross-cutting cutting with the chatter between McCready and uh, some of the other people there, then they pop you with it. And it is one of the best jumps you could have. Anytime I show somebody this movie for the first time, it never fails to elicit a response. It's, I think, one of the greatest jump scares of all time. And this movie has two of them. Uh, and both are entirely about misdirection. You know, mm-hmm. the pacing, the timing of that scene. And that's what's, that's what's so, not only the way that the effect is achieved, but the timing of it. Because it happens a beat before you expect it to happen. You know, your, your movie clock says, okay, if they're going to get me, it's going to happen here. And when you're halfway through that thought, the blood jumps out of the thing. Because it's total misdirection because of the dialogue between McCready and Gary and same with earlier when Copper's hands <laughs> go into Norris's body you're you're kind of distracted by the argument that McCready is having and you know this CPR thing that he's doing or the the resuscitation is kind of just a background detail at the time and so you just and again it doesn't happen on 3 he does it once it doesn't work he does it twice and it happens on two and again any other movie would do it on three just because that's what we're used to so it's totally about misdirection and really springing the scare on you when you are not ready for it at all again who thinks of the chest opening up and becoming a set of 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 teeth and (laughs) chomping off i mean that's one of the most disturbing things because that's one of those like obviously we've never felt that pain but we can see that and we can see the way that those teeth just chomp down on his arms and those bloody stumps just spraying everywhere. It is one of the most horrific things because you can kind of empathize with that pain and, and the uh, to imagine what that must be like. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. And I love uh, Dean Cundy recently did an interview. You may have posted it up on the Projection Booth Facebook page, Mike, but where he was talking about the blood scene. And mm-hmm. how he put in subtle hints as to who was actually the thing by lighting that he was he gave all the human characters uh, eye lights. So their eyes were all lit up and you could see them clearly. But Palmer, they introduced a shadow. And if you w- look various times throughout that sequence, his are the only eyes that are kind of shadowed over because he's the thing. Interesting. Yeah, it's a, it was really clever. And it's, again, not something anybody would catch on the first uh, time, but just enough to put in a little bit of ambiguity and build up the tension just a little bit more. And that was something that he uh, revealed on the commentary for the Scream Factory Blu-ray. And then, of course, it launched a thousand think pieces because oh, then God. it was, well, let's look at every other scene. And at the end, <laughs> as childs have the eye light and, you know, do other people have the eye light throughout? And I think I'm I'm 90 percent sure that Dean Cundy said, like, no, it was really just in that one scene. We decided to do it. It's not a trope that we carried throughout the making of the film. So it's not as though that's always the giveaway. Um, Mm -hmm. But in that scene, yeah, it's very, very clever. I just have so much admiration for Dean Cundy. I mean, his collaborations with Carpenter, everything he did on him on his own, there is a quintessential look that I can't define because I'm not trained in cinematography, but there is a look to 80s films. And to me, it reached its height under the lens of Dean Cundy. I don't know what it is about his movies, but they just pop to my eyes. Well, to think that the guy went from Graydon Clark to John Carpenter to Robert Zemeckis, you know, just this this amazing progression of working with these different directors and making these movies that just, you know, they're 
they're, they're classics. You know, so many of these things, Back to the Future, you know, uh, the, all of these Carpenter films, uh, all the way back to Halloween, and then, of course, Black Shampoo. You know, you can't get better than these. <laughs> yeah. This man worked on Ilsa, Harem Keeper of the Oil Sheiks. <laughs> right. And Jurassic Park. <laughs> to go from those two extremes, just amazing. Yep. What a career this guy had. Incredible. That blood test scene also is really nice in that we finally get the confirmation that Clark was a red herring the whole time and then have our hero, quote unquote, McCready, who is also under suspicion, have him be a murderer. I love Childs just calling him a murderer. You know, it's like, wow, okay, Yeah, but yet he is supposed to be our hero. And I just love that he makes that mistake. But yet we still can follow this character and we can still sympathize with this character. So, uh, it, I always found that a little bit harsh because, uh, you know, Clark was coming at him with a scalpel. Yes. So yes. We're, we, we were still a little bit on McCready's side. I love the interplay between Childs and him, though, just oh, yeah. constantly on each other. It's so combative. You love it. Yeah. And the, the editing of that scene is so brilliant because it gets progressively funnier by the time we cut to Nalls now out of the chair <laughs> holding the torch. And then we get another cut of Childs now standing next to them. Um, it's so great. And thank goodness that uh, we get the scene with the blood test where McCready tests his own blood and is revealed to be human. Because I, th- I suspect, if not for that moment, by virtue of the fact that it's Fuchs and Nalls who both find McCready's clothes and that they are the two characters who die off screen, who we do not see either assimilated or killed. I think we would now be subjected to, you know, again, a thousand more fan think pieces about how McCready is really the thing because the two people who found his clothes mysteriously die off screen. And then the movie becomes about unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm so not interested in. Well, you talked about jump scares, and we did say that there was a great jump scare with the blood. And again, another fantastic sound effect of that little creature when it pops out of the blood. And there's another great jump scare when Fuchs is uh, working and the lights go out and this you know shape passes in front of the door. One of two moments where we don't necessarily know who we're looking at. Well, I guess we don't know with, with Childs out in the snow later on. But it's great because in the original screenplay, there are many more jump scares, but they're actually margin notes to remove the jump scares. Nice. And it's just like, wow, you would never, you know, God, in an era where Bloomhouse is making films, you know, you would never get the removal of unnecessary jump scares. And they took out a bunch of them. There were many more at the uh, the Norwegian camp. You know, there was a, a body that's, it was almost like a Star Trek II kind of thing where a body kind of like falls down and is hanging there kind of thing, which is one of the great jump scares of Star Trek too. But yeah, they took that thing out and I can't remember. There was at least one or two more where it's just like you could see in the, in the margin, you know, remove. It's like, wow, okay, this is kind of nice to have a horror film where they're going to use those scares much more effectively by not giving them to us every five minutes. Well, and that when you, you talk about the Bloomhouse movies, you know, it pretty much anything James Wan is doing. And I, I do enjoy his films. But to see them for the first time in the theater, they are an exercise of just razor's head tension because you know something is going to try to startle you at any moment. 
Carpenter, he does he does employ them as well, but as you say, he employs them more sparingly. One of my favorite takedowns of jump scares, or at least the overuse of jump scares, came from Carpenter himself, where he described that, you know, he doesn't see any elegance in them. That he can he said, I can show you a black screen for 30 seconds and then f- do a flash of white and a loud noise and evoke the same response. You know, it's a startle. Mm-hmm. So obviously he he has no problem occasionally startling somebody, but he that he doesn't want that to be the beginning and end of how he's going to get under your skin. I've always thought that one of Carpenter's most effective moments was in Halloween where we just see Michael Myers outside during the day. Yeah amongst the laundry out there and it's just like that is a is a moment that you don't get in enough horror films i mean here we have the killer standing out there in broad daylight sure we'll get him in the darkened house later on we'll get him killing the babysitter that kind of stuff but okay yeah here he is just plain as day and we get a good look at him and it's just wow that always knocks me out when i see that And I don't know for sure if those notes in the margins of the script came from Carpenter, but I thought it was interesting that sometimes, uh, I forget the exact phrasing, but it was something like horror beat or something like that, where he was taking stuff out for being kind of almost too stereotypically a horror beat. You know, Fuchs being pinned to the door with the shovel was like, nah, take that out. That's... And Carpenter's, you know, the guy who made Halloween, the guy who essentially created that playbook in terms of contemporary kind of horror movies and was consciously backing away from a lot of that and saying, you know what, I've done that and I kind of perfected it and now I want to do something different and let's take out those things that are so stereotypically horror beats. And and as you said, Mike, let's let's save it for when it counts because there are – the when the movie cuts loose as a horror movie – I mean, it, it's a showstopper. And, and I think that's why The Thing is my favorite of all Carpenter's movies, because it kind of does both. It does the suspense and the tension and the dread of Halloween. But then it also goes fucking nuts at times and gives you it's the, the most inventive kind of over the top gore sequences you've ever seen, you know? I want to really quick backtrack a, a, a long way and talk about that Norwegian camp. You know, I did talk about how there was a, a, a horror beat or a jump scare in there. And I love that we have that Norwegian camp as part of the movie. And, and it just, it does such a great job of not having us necessarily follow the story in a, a linear way. You know, we are following it linearly at the camp at outpost 31 but then using the norwegian camp almost as a flashback and showing what damage this creature can do i think is really really smart and i think that they set that up so well and they they almost made it as an homage i think to the the thing from another world by having the videotape and having this you know the showing the men all outlined to show the size of the ship which was a, a shot right from the original and everything but it was so smart to me to use that to show us what is basically going to happen you know it's this whole like history is going to repeat itself and and you know it's almost like a um a prequel within the movie itself you know (laughs) here you go here's what happened before here's what's going to happen to you guys so it's really nice that we get to see just how fucked these guys are you know everybody's dead at this camp why is it going to be any different for outpost 31 oh yeah establishes so much tension in the beginning 
and it just really gives you a sense of the stakes that these men are going to have to face. And this morning when I was rewatching the film, I was just like, oh, man, it's such a mistake that they're taking this body back. And, you know, that's so typical scientist kind of thing. Like Bennings even says, who's going to destroy the find of the century? And I'm just like, oh, God, that's ridiculous. Why do you have to bring this back to camp? And I was like, oh, wait, the creature's already back at camp. Mm -hmm. You know, the creature is there twice. The creature's there by what? Copper and 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 uh, McCready bring back, and the creature's already there in the form of the dog, and it's been there for longer. And it's just like these guys are are completely fucked. There's no way that they're going to get out of this now. When I see those scenes from the Norwegian camp, sometimes I think to myself, "Boy, wouldn't it be nice if I knew the whole story of what happened <laughs> here? If only someone, hmm, if only hmm. someone would make a whole movie." Anyway. Yeah, no, that would that probably be pretty cool, I think. <laughs> if when they're at the Norwegian camp, rather than a blood test, they find out that the creature can replicate everything except for their fillings. Yeah. That's a that's a that's an equal trade off there. Thus proving definitively that child was child's was not the thing because he had his earring in. Ha Oh check and mate. There's no way a creature could Pierce its ear nope, afterwards. Nope, that was actually a plot point in the uh, in the this, the prequel. Oh my god! I mentioned this before, as far as this movie kind of being made in the editing, and I was very surprised at how similar and how different the screenplay was at the same time. I mean, we are there beat for beat, quite a bit of it, but then uh, what would you say? Like. The second half of the second act really kind of changes where we're going, and then we kind of bring it back right towards the end. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's it's pretty similar. But again, the movie is so kind of minimalist in so many ways that even a kind of a minor change, even if it is just showing Fuchs or um, you know characters biting down on cyanide capsules or <laughs> Nall yeah. cutting his own throat, you know. Um, that those feel like such significant changes. And, and in some ways they are because, you know, the choice of these characters to commit suicide almost regularly on screen essentially robs McCready's choice at the end of its power. There's, there's lip service played to the idea that Fuchs might have burned himself up rather than be uh, assimilated or whatever, but we don't really know what happened. So ultimately, in the in the theatrical version, it's really just McCready and Childs who make the decision to die, you know, rather than uh, try to fight back or 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 allow the thing to live or whatever. But in this scripted version, characters are kind of making that choice a lot. Um, we see it a lot. So so those changes stand out so much more, even though, as you said, they're not huge changes. It's not as though the script takes a complete right turn or anything like that. But um, the changes that are there do kind of really leap out at you the biggest one for me and i know Stuart cohen will mention this later on in his interview is the whole idea of them going out after the dogs some of the dogs have escaped from camp and so they're worried that the dogs might be things so they go out it's uh i think it's child's McCready and norris and norris actually gets pulled under the snow and kind of I don't know, assimilated while he's down there and pops up and stuff. And I think that would have been an interesting visual thing to see. But at the same time, it's good that they're not away from camp. Where McCready and Copper go to the Norwegian camp, I think is okay because 
we do get to check in back at Outpost 31 and see what's going on and see the dog loose in camp and all this kind of stuff. But once they come back, everybody stays there. You know, we don't have any moments where we think people are leaving the camp. So that's this whole idea of, you know, we're cut off. There's no communication. We can't reach anybody. Blair destroys the radios, destroys the helicopter, destroys the snow cat, all of these kind of things. So it made a lot more sense to me to keep everybody at camp once they finally got to that point. And I also like the decision to not have characters, um, you know, as Norris gets pulled under the snow and then comes back up and we know that he's the thing. Now, one of the things that I love about the film is that really the only character who we ever see in the process of being assimilated is Bennings. And so do all of the characters in the movie. It never plays that game where the audience knows something that the characters don't. So every time someone reveals himself to be the thing, it's a surprise to us as much as it is to the characters. It's not playing that game where we find out early on that Palmer is the thing. And so then in the blood test, we're just kind of waiting for the reveal or Blair or whomever. The only time we see it is with Bennings and it's dealt with right away. You know, there's so many versions of this movie where we see Bennings get uh, transformed or assimilated. And then we got to watch five or six scenes where he, talks in kind of a monotone and we're like, oh, something's up with him. Uh, We know that he's actually the thing, but they don't. The movie doesn't play that game. And that was something I think that was changed a little bit, too, from the script. Right. Or where we see the blonde android serve one of the guys a drink with a a drop of the alien juice in there and wait for him to transform. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times Prometheus has come up in my brain between thinking about the prequel to the thing that came out, uh, reading, um, Mike, you had passed along a, a, a script for an unproduced sequel called The Thing Returns. Uh, and Prometheus was going through my head a lot as I was reading through that. And uh, I'm just so glad that this movie exists. And despite all of the kind of ancillary attempts to get it going again or whatever... Like, it's just its own little perfect thing, and I can tune all that other stuff out. People might point to this movie and say, well, I never see Fuchs die. I never see Nalls die. I don't know what's happening with Childs at the end. What happens with this, that, and the other thing? And I don't care. You know, it goes back to that ambiguity that we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation where it's like, I'm okay not knowing who's a thing and who's not a thing at the end. And really... You know, unless they burn each other up at the very end of this, there's a strong possibility that one of them, maybe both of them are the thing and they'll just freeze and come back when somebody happens to find them, you know, next spring. It's such a down ending that it, I love it. It's beautiful. Yeah. You know, everybody, we t- we talk about everybody trying to determine, you know, who's the thing, what's the definitive answer. And while I don't necessarily feel the need to continue on exploring and uh, finding up new theories, I do have my, you know, f- favorite interpretation. And my my favorite interpretation, for what it's worth, is that neither of them are the thing. That this film, like so many of John Carpenter's films, is about the dissolution and destruction of a society. What more poignant image of of an apocalypse? You know, the thing gets included with um, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter as being his apocalypse trilogy. But what better uh, image of the apocalypse is it is that two people around the burning wreckage of their society and they still don't trust each other. 
But to me, that I think that's where some of the the that's the more powerful uh, stance to take from this. That what it, the best and most uh, grim ending is that neither of them are the thing, but they're still not going to trust each other. And that that has always been my interpretation as well. Just that neither one of them is the thing. It bothers me when people kind of point out, Mike, as you had said, well, we don't see. Fuchs and we don't see Nalls and and honestly it actually took me a few viewings before I realized like wait we never see what happens to Nalls that just but that those things don't happen by mistake I mean that's a choice that Carpenter made right and the yep. decision to not tell us who's the thing at the end is a choice that Carpenter made these are not things that happen by accident and so I too like the ambiguity the thing that that strikes me so much about the movie, uh, especially on this most recent viewing, you know, I've always kind of watched it as this movie that's about paranoia, about not being able to trust your fellow man, not being able to trust anyone, essentially. But the thing that I think is really unsettling and, and maybe what I was referencing very early in the show when I was talking about, you know, critics being touched in a way that they maybe didn't want to be touched is the idea that the thing creates a perfect copy to the extent that you don't know if you are the thing. So not only can you not trust the person next to you, you don't even know yourself if you are yourself. What is the difference between am I me or am I the thing? And how would I even know the difference? And it's this idea of am I living a lie? Am I a copy? Am I just this alien thing that has been assimilated? And how do I know the difference? And I think that there's something so dark and kind of fucked up about that idea, even more so than the ambiguity at the end of like, which one of them is the thing? Well, I think not. Why does one of them have to be? I think neither one is the thing. That ambiguity to me is even more powerful than, you know, the way that I used to kind of see it as an ambiguous ending. Even if they were both the thing, I don't think that they would know that the other person was, you know, if they were I don't both see the, thing, the movie would have ended tango and cash style with just a high five and a freeze frame. We did it. High five cut to bad English credits. <laughs> that would be fantastic. And then their hands would start merging together. And <laughs> <laughs> I love that. There's no moment when, you know, you, you don't get a moment where Palmer and Norris exchange a glance, you know, because they probably are the thing at the same time. And, you know, so we don't have that like invasion of the body snatchers kind of like now let's plant the pod in the baby's room kind of thing. You know, it's just they don't act together. You know, it's that that thing that I was talking about before where, you know, every piece of the thing is it's all looking out for a number one. It just wants to survive. And that's the only thing that it has. And it has no interest in helping out another thing or, you know, just it's all about itself. And that whole setting up that, that, that idea of that thing that is so driven to just continue versus these men that then have to work together in order to defeat it. I think that's probably, you know, and, and then also with that, idea of the paranoia of you can't trust these other men so how can you work together great great story to to tell you believe any of this voodoo bullshit blair 
Hey folks, this is Mike White, uh, actually kind of being the uh, ghost of Christmas future past. I'm breaking into this episode, which you will hear later was recorded in October. There's a lot of references to October, and this was originally slated to come out on Halloween 2016, but things got a little out of control with uh, the editing of this episode, especially with the interview with Stuart Cohen, the producer of The Thing. Now, I tried really hard to kind of salvage this interview. It was a great interview. Uh, Mr. Cohen had a ton of great stuff to say, but unfortunately, the sound quality was just not there. And no matter what we tried, couldn't really get a good, clean recording. I thought maybe I could fix it in post, those famous last words, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. So I'm not just throwing away the interview. I did post it over to SoundCloud, and I will have it on the posting for this episode at projection-booth.com. But I just really didn't feel comfortable including it as part of this episode just because it wasn't there. And I know people would be listening to this episode, and it would get to that interview, and they'd say, WTF is happening here. And even if I gave a warning like I'm kind of doing right now. Yeah, no, people just, uh, they don't necessarily hear, uh, sometimes when I'm speaking, they maybe even fast forward right to the interviews. So they would get to that and they would just be completely confused. So sparing people the bandwidth of that, uh, again, it is over at SoundCloud and you'll be able to listen to it over there and judge for yourself. Maybe I was wrong to leave it out of this episode, but you know, I didn't include everything. Uh, I didn't go back and take the, uh, Keith David stuff, uh, out of Requiem for a Dream and include it in this, but I would recommend that you check that out. So anyway, we do have some interviews coming up here for you. First, you're going to hear from John Kenneth Muir, the author of the films of John Carpenter, among many other things that Mr. Muir has written about. Second off, you're going to hear from Jez Connolly, who was the author of the Devil's Advocates book on The Thing. Highly recommended. You'll also hear from Dean Cundy, the cinematographer of The Thing, among other things. I talked to Mr. Cundy about quite a few films, uh, Halloween 3 being one of them. And you'll also hear from two of the actors from The Thing, Joel Polis, uh, also probably known best for his role as uh, the guy from the Jerk Store episode, uh, the comeback episode of Seinfeld. Really great guy. Great to talk with him. And Thomas Waits, who I'm surprised we didn't have on our Warriors episode forever and a day ago. Uh, he's on here now. <laughs> this one was a little touch and go as well. Uh, this is kind of like, uh, it's it's ironic because with that Warriors episode, Mondo Justin actually took our recordings and then added sound effects to make it sound like we were on the streets of New York. Well, with Mr. Waits... He is on the streets of New York, and you can hear the whole thing. Now, I cut out a couple things here and there, like when he's asking for the, you know, the passcode for the men's room, those kind of things. But, uh, yeah, this is him on his way to an audition. So you're, you kind of hear him, like, going into the coffee shop, going into the bathroom, going up the hallway, going here, going there. So I tried to minimize as much of the background noise as I could, but uh, it adds a little bit of flavor to this episode. So... Again, if you want to hear the Stuart Cohen, if you want to hear the Stuart Cohen interview as well, that will be available. Uh, go to projection-boot.com so you can check that out. And otherwise, here are yeah, five 
pretty strong interviews, I would hope. I hope folks enjoy these, and you'll hear those all after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Here are just a few of the things famous people say about the After Movie Diner podcast. Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench, and when I'm not dusting the submarine, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast. You know, for the film reviews. Hello, I'm Eric Stoltz, and when I'm not taking Uncle to the pictures, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the interviews. Hello, I'm Lewis Gossett Jr., and when I'm not trampolining for peace, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the music. Hello, Bernie Torpin here, and when I'm not undermining Venezuela. I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the guests. Hello, I'm Celia Emery Stuntdouble, and when I'm not wanking for tumours, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the comedy. Hi there, I'm Ali Sheedy, and when I'm not taking photographs of bricks, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast, mostly for the pancakes. Yes, that's right. The award-winning After Movie Diner podcast is all things to all people. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, and at www.aftermoviediner.com. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, not the least. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios.
what was the first Carpenter film that you saw? The first Carpenter film that I saw was, believe it or not, The Thing. And it was an incredible circumstance that to this day, I believe, shaped my life and my tastes. But um, my parents believe very much that I should um, see the country as a young man, that I should visit lots of different states. And the summer of 82, we went on a cross-country trip uh, in our Ford van from uh, New Jersey to California. It was a southern route, so we went through Texas and the southern states. And when we got to California, we went to Los Angeles. And this was after maybe five or six weeks, and we were very tired. And there was a theater in Los Angeles near our campsite showing a double feature of The Thing and Blade Runner. So I encountered both of those movies, one after the other, um, you know, in, in one sitting. And um, I was young. I mean, I, it was a rated R film, The Thing. Um, and I guess I would have been 12 or 13. Um, and it left an amazing impact on me. I believe the way the double feature worked, it was The Thing first and then Blade Runner. Um, and I loved both films, but oddly enough, I think The Thing registered with me even more. So that was the first Carpenter film I saw. I saw it in the theater, summer of 82, and um, I think it probably took me a while to process it, but it just stunned me. I'd never seen anything like that. Now, I know that when The Thing came out, it was not beloved by critics, but here you are as a very young man seeing this. What did you think of it? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved it. I just remember being completely immersed in it, that the level of reality to me at that time in the film was so high that I think, I mean, I just absolutely um, identified with everything that was happening. It seemed so real. Um, you know, of course, we've had, uh, I mean, the special effects still hold up remarkably well, I think. But at that time, they were revolutionary. I mean, I never encountered something like that. You know, I was very much into um, science fiction uh, in terms of space fantasy, Star Wars, Star Trek, stuff like that. But that's like a whole different level of reality. The thing was probably first R-rated. If it wasn't the first, it had to be one of the first R-rated movies that I saw. And certainly uh, to encounter um, the kind of uh, body transformation kind of things uh, was just stunning to me. The, the one that always got me, the one that just absolutely freaked me out at that age, and I still I still sort of, I don't know, subconsciously blanch at it, I guess, or unconsciously too, is the death of, um, or it's not the death, but it's um, Doc Copper, his, uh, where he puts the, um, the paddles uh, on the, the body, and his paddles go right through the body, and the torso becomes a mouth, and they bite his arms off. And he swings his arms around. They're just stubs and they're like spurting blood and stuff. <laughs> that, that to me, um, was beyond anything that, you know, a 12-year-old mind could conceive and, and, and has stuck with me. Carpenter wasn't your first biography that you did, but it was pretty early on your career, correct? Yes, yeah. The first one I actually did was Wes Craven. Um, that was in 97. And I did Carpenter in 2000. And they were both you know, artists that I absolutely loved. And I, my love of Craven came a little later um, as ter in terms of my life, but I did the book first because it was very timely. Um, I wrote the Craven book sort of right during the um, 
his career boom with Scream and Scream 2. I remember getting Scream 2 right in sort of under the deadline for that book. Um, and, and so there was a lot to talk about with uh, Wes Craven at that point. And then after that, I knew exactly what I wanted. You know, my next biography has got to be John Carpenter. Um, and in large part, is because my love of the thing. Well, how did you go about approaching the Carpenter book? Because, I mean, he's done horror, of course, but he's done a whole lot of other things as well. For me, the key to John Carpenter was found in my uh, original and discarded title for the book, which was Dark Star Hollywood's, um, John Carpenter Hollywood's um, like genre maverick or something like that. I know it was called, it was going to be called Dark Star and then something about John Carpenter, filmmaker and maverick, something along those lines. But I remember I wanted to call it Dark Star, but that you know, at some point down the road that that was considered maybe that that wasn't well known, known enough of his films that that wouldn't necessarily be a, a selling point. But it explains how I see uh, John Carpenter is that um, I, I've always viewed him as uh, in line with the comments uh, Woody Allen made in a- Annie Hall. He's sort of a filmmaker who wouldn't be part of any club that would have him as a member. You know, he's making horror movies. Uh, he's making popular um genre films like Starman, but how he's doing them, he's making them as a Western. He's remaking Rio Bravo. He's doing these things with these films that are sort of out of step with what they actually appear to be. He's finding his own pleasure in it. And um, not only that, sort of marching to the beat of his own drum, but he's harking back to this earlier period in film history, uh, the studio system. And if you know, you could make horror Western films in the studio system. They would look, you know, something like Ghosts of Mars or uh, Assault on Precinct 13, uh, things like that, even Prince of Darkness in some sense. You know, all of these uh, films that restage the central scenario of uh, of Rio Bravo or the works of, of Howard Hawks. So he, he was a maverick. He was doing what he loved and trying to make them popular with audiences. And he, he certainly he, he did. He achieved that for quite a while. So when you are beginning your research, where, where do you even begin with somebody like him? <laughs> where do I begin with someone like John Carpenter? Well, I begin with, I always do this, because my, my books are, um, you know, we, we said they're a biography, but they, what they really are and where my love, what my love is with um, these directors and these films is to take apart these films and to look at what's actually being said and how they're being said and look at what the, what the film style is. What do the shots say? Um, how, how do the shots uh, reflect, augment the content, things like that. So what I'm really doing is I'm giving you some background on Carpenter so you can understand who he is, where he's been, what he's doing in his career, when he was, when he made the film. That's the context around the film. But the big deal for me is like the film itself as a text. And so for me, one of the key things was, and it seems dumb now because um, clearly um, history has spoken and everybody knows the thing is a masterpiece. Um, And I'm not saying I was the first person to say that, but the tide hadn't really turned. I mean, the book came out in 2000, so I don't know, I was writing it in 1998, 1999. And I was, you know, I was continuing to see all of these things um, in the popular entertainment that were clearly riffing or developing off of what he did in 1982. And yet there hadn't been any real critical reevaluation of it. Uh, of the thing, like I saw the uh, the main villain of Deep Space Nine in the late '90s, where uh, they were shapeshifters, like the thing, and the only way you could detect people or the shapeshifters was through a blood test. I thought, I mean, come on, that's 
You know, that's the thing. There was a great epi- early episode of the X-Files called Ice set at an Arctic base where people are saying, I'm not who I am. And because they have parasites in them, again, the isolated setting, the snow, the, the uh, inability to confirm the identity of the people closest to you. Um, you know, again, the, it had to be inspired by how Carpenter, um, you know, did his remake of the thing, because certainly the 1950s film didn't have a lot of that. It was, you know, a alien carrot, so to speak, a big you know, guy with a dome forehead. It was a very different thing. It was going back to the, um, the Campbell uh, short story, Who Goes There? But how he developed it visually and brought that context into the 80s was what interested me. And, you know, in each of his films, and, you know, by that time, of course, I'd, I'd seen all of the films that were out. Um, you know, my, my great disappointment is that I haven't been able to write a chapter on Ghost of Mars, which I love. The, the films at that point, I mean, there were so many things to to talk about and to to evaluate, um, to talk about Halloween and the concept of evil and this incredible idea in the rational 70s uh that um you can't catalog you can't diagnose um you can't pinpoint what makes somebody evil you know the shape he's he's purely and simply evil and you have this psychiatrist sam loomis not saying you know this is the disorder he suffers you have him saying you know uh he has the devil's eyes the the blackest eyes you know and we have to kill him you know it's it's uh it's it's just a crazy kind of thing it's this uh, insertion of irrationality into modern culture. And so I, I just wanted to write about all these things I loved in, in Carpenter's films that I saw that I feel like people hadn't really commented on, or at least not broadly. I do, I do think, and I, I must state this, I think there was a John Carpenter book before mine. I've never gotten my hands on it. Um, I think it was called Order in the Universe, maybe? And I can't remember the author's name. Um, but I wasn't the first one and I was not the last one to write about John Carpenter. And I think, uh, his films continually, continually are being reappraised. I said, um, in some review, I said, you can't really count out John Carpenter. Don't ever underestimate John Carpenter because it starts out that people say his films are bad, especially later in his career. Within five years, people are saying, you know, they're really not that bad. And then within 10 years, people are like, this was a masterpiece. I mean, you see it again and again and again, um, that his films are, are always going through this process of reevaluation and, and they're always sort of being evaluated up. I mean, I remember in the mouth of madness was a box office bomb and I mean, people hated it when it first came out, it was a disaster. It came and went within five years. People were saying, you know, I, I kind of like that. And now people talk about it as, as a great film. Well, go back and find some reviews that will tell you it was a great film and you know, whatever it was, 1994, 1995. So, Carpenter, because of his classical visual style, his approach to material, I think he's constantly being reevaluated. People are saying, wait a minute, this was actually really good. This holds up really well. So where some films kind of age, and I, I might even point out Scream, uh, Wes Craven's Scream at this point, and, and seem campy, Carpenter's films don't seem to do that. They, they don't seem to age in that particular way. Where was Carpenter at in his career at this point when he was making the thing? Because I know he was just on a like a string of hits. And how did this one come about? Well, he was a star on Blazing Ascent. I mean, you have to realize 
that um, Assault on Precinct 13. Well, okay, well, first of all, Dark Star. Okay, I had a lot of problems going into it. It was a student film developed into a major film, but it got picked up and distributed. So, okay, I mean, that's pretty amazing. I mean, how many of us make a student film that then gets released in theaters, right? And then critics really liked Dark Star. Sure, it wasn't a box office, you know, smash or anything like that, but it had critical approval. And again, started as a student film. So, okay, that's pretty good. You go then to Assault on Precinct 13, very popular, especially outside of America. People recognize all the classic influences. Uh, John Carpenter edited the film under the name of a character, I believe, from Rio Bravo, the John Wayne character. Um, you know, he had all these allusions to, you know, Hawksian women from Howard Hawks films. You know, it, it was just a very clever film. And for people who love film, again, it was a slam dunk. It was sort of an intellectual exercise in a very action-packed genre film. But then, of course, the film that broke it all open for him was Halloween. Uh, it didn't start out strong, but strong word of mouth uh, made it a hit. And after that, between 1978 and 1980, and the, the fog was in there, Carpenter, if you go back and read the periodicals, was being compared, along with one other director, Brian De Palma, to the next Hitchcock. Now, today... Uh, younger folks might not recognize what that means, but in the late 70s, shortly before his death, Alfred Hitchcock was the man in film circles. He was the great film director, the master of suspense. People were constantly looking for who's the next Hitchcock? Who is the heir to Hitchcock? And over the years, you've heard it's going to be George Romero, it's Brian De Palma, it's John Carpenter. And Carpenter, ever sort of the modest fellow, said, no, no, I'm not even trying, you know, I'm not trying to be Alfred Hitchcock. I'm just, be I'm just being myself. But people were comparing him to Hitchcock, specifically for Halloween and the use of suspense in Halloween. Um, and most people don't realize sort of how, how little gore is in the film and how much is suspense and surprise and things like that. So he had Halloween under his belt. The Fog was a success, though maybe not the success everybody had hoped. And Escape from New York in 1981 was also really big. I mean, got great reviews, got great reviews, had this satirical angle to it that, you know, New York City becomes a prison in the future. You know, everyone's going to New York. Well, yeah, as convicts, um, you know, a great, a great high concept movie came out around the same time as uh, The Road Warrior. It wasn't exactly post-apocalyptic, but I guess you call it dystopian. And so it was playing into this thing sort of going on in the culture about, you know, are we headed into an era of lawlessness and stuff like that? So each one of his films was success. Yeah, all of those films were successes. They were, they, they, it was a string of successes. And then he did the thing. And that was the pivot point in John Carpenter's career. The pivot point his career never recovered from. The reviews for The Thing, if you've ever read them, are as savage and mean-spirited and out of proportion as you can imagine. I mean, this was a guy who made a film and he was being called a pornographer of violence. I remember one review saying he was better suited to direct directing traffic than he was a film. It changed everything for him. He, he was on this unbelievable ascent and the thing not just stalled that ascent, but sent him plummeting down. And of course, the cosmic unfairness of that is as we know right now, the thing is a masterpiece. It is, I would say, you know, on some days, you know, I, I'll have a fight between is it Halloween or is it the thing in my own head, but you know, it's certainly one of his two best films. 
you know, depending on where you are uh, in your head that day. You know, it's, it's one of his two greatest films. And I think it's, you know, one of the great science fiction horror films of the 1980s. And yet it was so far ahead of its time that people couldn't take it. Critics couldn't take it. In the summer of E.T., you'd think maybe counter-programming would work, right? Oh, we have a nice alien. What's the mean, you know, terrible alien, monstrous alien. Didn't work that way. Didn't work that way at all. Why do you think that is? What what was in the air that kind of sentenced the thing to a death sentence? There are a couple of factors uh, involved, and one is very much something that we still have in our culture, and that is, and please forgive me for saying this, but <laughs> the there is there you know, and, and fans of movies are wonderful, and I love movies and everything, but the thing had been a film that people grew up with. A Howard Hawks film that people grew up with in the 50s. It had had a lot of years to get the glow of nostalgia upon it. It was a good film. Um, people grew up with it. They saw it on TV a lot of times. It was great. It became a standard. It was a standard for John Carpenter. You know, you think 1950s, I think, okay, this island Earth, the day the Earth stood still, uh, Forbidden Planet, and of course, uh, The Thing from Another World, The Thing. These were, you know, the masterpieces of that age. And you see it today. Along comes a remake, and it's not what people remember. It's not what people want. It's not done the same way. You cannot recapture the same moment in the pop culture. And so a lot of the older fans, science fiction and horror fans who should have supported the film and written in support of the film for how good it was, they immediately dismissed it because it was unlike its predecessor. I mean, sometimes like even there was a magazine at the time, Starlock, in Starlog, you know, you'd have um, the cast members from the original thing in interviews saying how bad the remake is and things like that. I mean, we see it today. And yes, sometimes remakes are quite bad. Um, I've gotten to the point as a critic where I don't dismiss a remake as bad to, until I see it. And then I think, what is it offering? Um, if we dismiss out of hand every remake as bad, we miss something like the thing. Or we miss something like the remake of The Hills Have Eyes. Or we... You know, we, we miss something like um, the 1978 invasion of the body snatchers or the Abel Ferreira uh, invasion of the body snatchers. Mm -hmm. You know, so one thing was out came this film that's a remake and all the people who had nostalgia for the original go in to see it. And it's this very inventive but grotesque film that doesn't have this sense of camaraderie that the other one did. It's not at all like that film. The monster's different. Everything's different. And they hate it. And they're not shy about saying they hate it. And so they dismiss the film. So there's one contingent, a very powerful and vocal contingent. A lot of journalists at the time were people who grew up with a thing, who see this remake and do not know what to make of it. It is not like the first. These the two things are very different. And so they slam it. They don't see the values it has. All they can say is, it's totally not like its predecessor. And I loved its predecessor. I grew up with it. Um, so so, so that's, that's one aspect right there. The other is... And again, forgive me for saying, Hollywood loves to build people up and then slam them down. You can absolutely see this over and over again. Somebody makes a bunch of great films, they're succeeding, they're succeeding, then somebody wants to bring them down a peg. And, and critics are terrible at this. I, you know, I feel like I'm you know, attacking my own people here, but it's true. You look at um, somebody like Kevin Costner or Ben Affleck who had a lot of success, and then they go out and they make a film, they win Oscars, things like that. But then they become poison. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, you've succeeded enough. Now we have to bring it down a notch. Who do you think you are being so successful? I'm going to destroy you. 
Not to, I mean, you know, Kevin Costner and Waterworld. Hey, who here knows Waterworld was profitable? You know, <laughs> it actually made money, you know, but you read it even today and say it was the biggest bomb in history. But, you know, Kevin Costner made Dances with, with Wolves, and then he made Waterworld. And, you know, it's so easy at that point to take somebody who's been successful and slam them down. And I think there was that aspect of it. You know, Carpenter's been too successful. He's had this amazing string of films. We don't get what this movie is. Let's take it down. Let's take him down. And that makes it sound personal. I don't really think it was personal. It was more like I resent somebody being so successful and having a string of successes like that. Again, I mean, Ben Affleck, you know, I mean, he made a lot of really good films. He was in Oscar winning films, but then he made Gijdash, uh, I can't say it, Gigli, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, uh, and Jennifer Lopez. And you think that's all he'd ever done. He became a joke. For years, he became a joke. He's kind of coming out of that phase now. But mark my words, at some point, it's going to spin right back around. <laughs> it's going to spin right back on him when he has had too much success again. That's, that's how Hollywood works. Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts. You look at her career, it's like that. She goes up, up, up. And then, boy, do they love to slam her down when she's in a bad movie, like I Love Trouble or whatever she's in with the bad Nick Nolte movie. I, that horrible movie. But you know, it's like, wow, no, you don't just say, okay, you had a, you know, something didn't work. You, you go after the person. And I think... I think there were some people gunning for a new Carpenter film that didn't want to see, you know, him have another success in a string of really unprecedented successes, especially in a very conservative time, a very conservative time. Uh, you know, the early days of the Reagan revolution in the 1980s, critics are launching a jihad against horror films. I mean, there's really no other word for it. You, you look at what they were saying about the slasher films of the time, like Friday the 13th. Uh, and they're saying these films are not only bad, they're bad for society. They make people meaner. Um, they're misogynistic, all these things. And you have someone like John Carpenter who keeps making horror movies like Halloween, The Fog, The Thing, and who is not afraid to be on the cutting edge of special effects or things like that. And you see him as part of this tide of films you don't like. And so he becomes, again, a target for that reason. And so does his work. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous. And again, I am so sad. I am so sad that I saw this all repeat again. In the 2000s, we had the so-called torture porn or Gorno films. And instead of critics, instead of critics saying these movies are reflecting their time and what's happening, you saw movies like Hostel, um, Attacked further on saying these are and and so, and again sometimes these were horror fans who were saying this these are like the worst things ever they're so bad for society all they are is gore and killing the saw movies that's all there is and they missed the social commentary they missed the context around the films and it was like they were repeating the same thing with the slasher movies you would have thought if you read the reviews of those slasher movies in the early eighties the time the thing came out you would have thought that was the end of the human race these <laughs> films. Now, now you go back, you watch Friday the 13th, it's like King Kong or Godzilla. <laughs> you know, it's like so innocent. <laughs> You're like, oh, this is what people were saying was the end of civilization? Really? Really? Uh, but people did it again in the 2000s. And so also consider that context. You know, early 80s, 82, we're in that conservative time. Critics hate horror movies at that point. And here comes one that... It's not a slasher film. It's not what they called a nice kill film. But, I mean, let's face it. The thing has these incredible body transformations and special effects. There's very, I don't think there's a whole lot of red blood, but there's a lot of fluid. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of goop. There's a lot of you know, mucus and slime and stuff like that. And, and so, the, you know, hey, this, again, pornographer of violence. 
That's what they call them, a pornographer of violence. So there's that. I can tell you chapter and verse why they went after the thing. It was Spielberg summer. It was Spielberg summer. And that was in the press. Everybody knew it was Spielberg summer. He had E.T. He produced Poltergeist. And hey, Toby Hooper was a victim in the summer of Spielberg, too. He directed Poltergeist. But who got all the press? And they said Spielberg directed it. And it, it was all suburbia, happy feelings, family, da-da-da, sticking together, dealing with ghosts or with E.T., whatever. It was the whole Spielberg and children's summer. And along comes this film with no children where the alien is this absolutely horrible thing that's, you know, ripping through people's flesh and their underdrawers and, you know, <laughs> changing form and, you know, just, you know, this totally not family-friendly film in the summer of Spielberg. So there's that too. I mean, I, I've talked way too long, but I feel very passionately about this. There were a lot of reasons, a lot of contextual reasons why the thing didn't succeed. And not a one of them had anything to do with the actual quality of the film. I want to ask you about the relationship between Carpenter and Kurt Russell, because this is one of many films that they would make together. What was their kind of working relationship? Do you know? You know, again, I mostly write reviews as far as, you know, what I see in the films, the, the themes I see strung together and, the, and, and how the visuals are reflected. The way I parse that relationship on those terms is very clearly that Kurt Russell is the John Wayne to John Carpenter's Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks had a company that he would use again and again, a star that he would use again and again, and a kind of stock story that he would use again and again. And you know, people would confront John Wayne about that and say, you know, aren't you, isn't, isn't um, this movie just a remake of Rio Bravo that you did with Howard Hawks? He'd say, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Carpenter works with people who, who he knows he can get what he needs out of them and who he enjoys working with. And so you've got that John Wayne-Howard Hawks relationship. I mean, that Kurt Russell is his John Wayne. Um, somebody who he can put in this lead role who's going to do it the way he wants to and, and who he has a shorthand with um, to, to, to create these characters. Um, I think, you know, I mean, if I were looking at it in terms of his career, I mean, for me, the one that gets me, I mean, I love uh, big trouble in little China and Kurt, I, I love Kurt. That's my sort of favorite use of Kurt Russell, but I, I mean, snake Plissken is obviously awesome as well. Um, but like the thing is probably in some ways, uh, I don't know, the, the least larger than life, um, Kurt Russell performance, if that makes sense. It's not an overt sort of Clint Eastwood parody like Pliskin, and it's not actually a John Wayne parody, which is what Burton is in Big Trouble in Little China. It, it's much more a real grounded character. Um, but, but I mean, it's, I think it still works, but you can see how he's used differently in those films. I, I simply think Carpenter picked somebody who he liked, who he knew he could work with from their Elvis uh, TV movie together, and who he knew they, he had a shorthand and they knew how to work together. And I think it was a very fruitful relationship. I want to switch topics for just a real uh, brief moment here and ask you, um, what did you find when you were doing your research about uh, Carpenter's involvement in the eyes of Laura Myers? He was not happy. Now, again, this is mostly secondhand research because, again, but the big thing for me is uh, the the text, the film themselves. Um, behind the scenes stories I, I, I find incredibly interesting and they do – fit into sort of the context of how the film was made and what you see. But my understanding was that, you know, he wrote that and he wasn't happy with the changes that were made, but that he couldn't really do anything about it and that he didn't particularly like um, the finished film. And if I'm putting any words in his mouth, I would apologize. That is my memory 
of the research that I did for that film and uh, for the movie, because I did cover it in there. I mean, he didn't direct it. Was it Irvin Kirshner who directed it? He he was sort of a well-known, I guess, writer at that point, and he wrote it, but he wasn't happy with how it turned out. That's my understanding. Now, we talked a little bit about uh, remakes and people just kind of, uh, you know, dismissing them uh, whole cloth. What did you think of the Thing remake? You know, you're going to be really, I think you'll be surprised with it. I liked it. I liked it. I I did not hate it. I thought it had some, um, I, I didn't I didn't like the, the CGI. I actually thought that the digital effects didn't do the job quite as well as the physical effects in the 1982 version because so much of the thing is about flesh. It's about fle- the, the pliability and the fragile nature of, of human flesh and what can be done to it. Um, you know, the, it, the, it's a very tactile film and CGI. I generally don't have a problem with in science fiction films because you're imagining, you know, the planet Vulcan or Tatooine or whatever, and it's a, uh, a science fiction landscape and it isn't so important somehow to feel the tactile nature of it. In horror, horror is about the blood, horror is about the flesh. You need to feel the sort of visceral impact of the flesh. And so I didn't like the CGI effects, but I did like some of the the wrinkles in it, like about um, the fillings and metal implants coming out that the thing could not duplicate or imitate you know your fillings which makes perfect sense i thought that was very interesting that's that's a nice little wrinkle because you know they wanted to do the blood the blood scene the blood test scene again you just know they were aching to do that again because that was sort of the high point of carpenter's film where you stick the hot needle into the um little petri dish and the blood pops out you just know they wanted to do that but instead they did something different and and so I, i appreciated that and i you know the fidelity to the original, to Carpenter's vision, was really good. I mean, the, the, the continuity, how it fit the sets, you know, down to like where an axe is planted in the wall and where somebody has, you know, cuts their throat and it becomes, it freezes and becomes an icicle. You know, I thought all that was really good. I think, so. you know, I didn't hate it. I've, I've actually watched it a couple times and I thought, yeah, you know, I can live with it. Um, I don't think that um, it was great. And, and part of the reason I don't think it was great is... Um, it's the uh, what I call enterprise effect, which is that um, you have a story where all along um, you're introduced to these characters, and it's sort of their, it's sort of the first event or adventure, and you watch them puzzle their way through it. So it's like we've always thought Kirk and Spock, like that was like, oh yeah, okay, first Vulcan on a starship, Captain Kirk, Star Trek, Enterprise, the first adventures adventures of the Enterprise. That's what we've sort of known for 50 years. And then they make Enterprise, and it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Archer was the, first, the cat, a captain of the Enterprise. He had all these adventures, too, and he had a Vulcan with him, too. And so what you all thought was so special about Star Trek, well, it was all done, like, you know, 20 years before them. So all the stuff that felt new and fresh in Star Trek, well, that wasn't really new and fresh. Um, there, there, there are people who had adventures just like that, and it was set before them in time. And the, <laughs> so it's like all the struggles of McCready and Childs and everybody in the thing where we went through the learning process with them, you know, the prequel of the thing makes everybody else to go through the same learning process, but before them. So it kind of undoes the special nature of their, uh, of their adventure in some way. It's like, oh, everyone else did this before. Just like um, the, it's just, it could be this, I could call it the alien versus predator principle as well. It's like, you know, you have all these future alien movies with Ripley and she's, you know, 
fighting for her life, even dying to stop the aliens from getting to Earth. And then you get Alien versus Press. All the aliens were on Earth in 2004, and it was fine. You know, kind of undercuts Ripley's struggle. You know, it's like, oh, she gave her life so the aliens wouldn't get back to Earth. But it turns out, before she was born, aliens did make it to Earth. And, you know, sheriffs with shotguns could kill them. So, uh, you know, it kind of undoes her sacrifice and, and her, her whole journey as a character. So I think that the prequel to the thing can't quite escape uh, the, that idea that it, in some way, even though it's paying homage to Carpenter's The Thing, it's also at the same time undercutting it um, because it, it's so faithful. It's like, okay, now we're seeing other characters go through the exact same paces and they're doing it before Kerr Russell's character. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's, it's kind of like the, the, the Star Wars prequels. It's like, oh, that's where that came from. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yep. It kind of undercuts it, you know, when you see it all play out again with somebody beforehand going through the exact same set of paces. It's like, oh, it's not so special. You know, it's not so special that McCready went toe to toe with a thing and, you know, brought it to a standstill because Mary, uh, Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth Winstead did it, you know, hours before he did it. You know, right? <laughs> so, not, there's, some, there's just something there that doesn't quite work. But I didn't hate the film. I didn't hate the film as many did. been writing about films for many many years how did you first get into it way back um it started because my dad was a cinema manager uh, for many many years i mean going back to the 1930s believe it or not he was an older dad so he was 50 when i was born so i kind of you know i inherited his interest in films i suppose and i i started going to see films from a young age and didn't have to pay to see films until i was about 21 which is amazing and then um as I kind of went through my 20s and 30s, I kind of got more interested in, you know, critiquing film, I suppose. Ended up getting in touch with some publishers after having done a, a master's course in film studies in the, in the 2000s. And it kind of went on from there, really. Um, and it's just kind of built up. And I've done about, what, it's about five different books now. So yeah, I'm working on my sits at the moment. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of mushroomed, I suppose. How did you get involved with the uh, World Films Location series? Well, it started from just a random, we just went for a random walk in a, in a small part of the city that we live in. And uh, my wife saw this advert on a, a post office notice board about people interested in joining a film club. So I got in co- contact with a guy who ended up being uh, part of a, a publisher in uh, Bristol, uh, which is near to back where I live. And um, we didn't do the film club, but he, he did uh, end up being a good contact in, with that publisher. And just the timing was right, I suppose. And before I knew it, three titles later, uh, <laughs> I'd edited uh, a number of books. So uh, it was it's a, a good series of books. I went to about 30, 40 titles. So we did three of them, uh, finished now. But uh, they were really nice, really nice books to, to work on, actually. Very collaborative stuff. And how did you get involved with The Devil's Advocates? There was um, an event at the BFI in Southbank in London to launch the location series. And I got talking to one of the other book editors at that event, and he'd just been in touch with the publisher at Auteur, who's just starting up the Devil's Advocates range at that point. So he said, why don't you drop him a line? 
And uh, again, so it's a ton of seren- weird serendipity. Went on from there, one thing led to another. And before you knew it, I got the green light on the thing. But So why the thing? Why was that your first uh, choice for those guys? I went to that event with a friend of mine, and we both said, you know, which which if you got to an opportunity to to write a book for this series, which film would you write for? And the first thing that I said was the thing. It was it was going to always going to be the thing, um, because it was it was the horror movie that I saw when I was about sixteen, seventeen, which made the biggest impression on me, and it kind of stayed with me down the years. And I, I kind of always I've always watched it regularly over those decades since it was released, and um, it's just kind of stayed with me. And it's just I just kind of knew. At that point in time, particularly given that it had been a while since a book had been written about it, that it felt like a good time to write another one. And there was my opportunity, so I, I, I kind of did it. Was there any trepidation on your part, having had Ann Bilson write the BFI Modern Classics book on this, and then you're kind of having to step in and try to say something that she didn't say? Uh, I think that's through my mind, but I kind of figured that Ann wrote her book about 15 years after the film came out. And mine was going to be about 15 years after Anne's book came out. So it was a good amount of time. And in that time, I kind of figured that a lot of things had changed. The internet had come along, fan culture had really, really kind of come along. And so there's quite a lot more to cover that Anne just didn't cover in her book. I also, in a way, what it helped me to, reading Anne's book again, I, I, it helped me to avoid doing mine in exactly the same sort of way. She wrote her book in quite chronological way which is tends to be characteristic of the BFI classics books, if you have any of those you've read, but um, they tend to kind of step step through the film in chronological order, but I wanted to avoid that. So it kind of gave me something to uh, to not to do, if you like, and made it a bit easier for me to choose how to actually put the book together. So no, I was in touch with Anne uh, in the early stages of writing the book as well, because she actually wrote the first book in the Devil's Advocate series covering Let the Right One In. So I had a bit of a connection there. Um, and she seemed very ha- happy and was quite helpful and supportive. I like every bit of a nod in, in my book as well, which but didn't hurt. Um, so yeah, all very amicable, I think is, is fair to say. I have to say, I was amazed at just how much new ground you covered when it came to the book. You did, you brought to light so many things that I had never thought of before. Ah, I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thoughts, it's the thoughts that have always the film has sparked off in me over the years. Uh, which again, thinking about what I wanted to cover, uh, it was this kind of more thematic um, approach that I wanted to do. So I hope I kind of achieved that. And, and yeah, I think I've always thought there was there were things in there that uh, could be dug out, if you like, to, to coin a phrase and, and examined. I was certainly quite keen to go back through to the original novella as well, and just to sort of get more link up between that and the Carpenter movie. So I hope I covered that uh, a little bit in, in the book. Pleased to do that. And but also to try and avoid, you know, some of the um, areas that have been quite well covered. You know, the, obviously the practical effects fairly well written about, and I do cover that in the book. But there's so much more to write about. I was really interested in the the whole the environment, the Antarctic environment, and how it's you know bottom of the world, everything's turned upside down, and and you get a lot of upside downness and inside outness in the movie as well, which seems to be really, really appropriate. And that, I think, hot back to the, the novella quite a bit. If you read that again, it's, it's remarkable how how much of that does actually, you know, kind of work its way into the Carpenter movie that certainly wasn't there in the 1951 original movie, uh, which is quite a different beast, I think. 
Well, yeah, the whole idea of the magnetism and the the bronze nature of McCready, and even tying it into the uh, inability to absorb the fillings in that uh, remake, I, th- I thought that you did a really wonderful job when it came to examining that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I hope I was reasonably kind to the prequel. Actually, I, I, uh, it could have been a different story, I suppose. I mean, I, I think they they did well to. Uh, be reasonably faithful to to the the Carpenter movie, uh, and they had a few kind of uh, gave a few answers to a few of the loose ends that were from that movie. But um, yeah, the, the the feelings thing stuck out to me as something that was oh yeah that's reminiscent. And of course, everybody goes on about uh, child's earring at the end of the movie, which is still intact, of course. So if, strictly speaking, if he was a thing, and that's one big area for debate, maybe he wouldn't have had his earring still in his in his ear. But that's what's one that's one of the fun imponderables, isn't it, about the thing they like to debate that. The fans have been great, by the way. I was in touch with the, the folks who uh, run Outpost 31. They were really supportive. Uh, they run an interview with me as well after the book came out. Well, it's interesting that you talked about Anne's book coming out 15 years after the first film, or after the film, and then yours book coming out 15 years after that. Just the way that the critics and fans have approached this movie over the years has been uh, kind of a, a chapter unto itself when it comes to the the film. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. Actually, I think it seems to have a natural life cycle, which is quite appropriate, isn't it? Um, so who knows how it's going to be received in a few years' time? We'll, I mean, hopefully I'll, I'll be around for that. Well, whether I'll be writing another book about it, I don't know. But um, yeah, it'll always be interesting one to revisit. I think, and uh, I think the tra- the um, the fan base will will move along through. I, I I just it's a movie that I doesn't feel like it ages at all. I we attended a screening of it in Bristol a few months ago, underground, believe it or not, in some caves, an area of about 60 people there, most of them about half my age. Most of them, when I asked at the beginning, have they seen it before? Most of them hadn't seen it at all before, but they packed out this cave to see it. What an amazing environment it was to see a film like that. It went down really well. And, and it's what I found really interesting in recent years is how the appreciation and accessibility of practical effects seems to have kind of come around again that we've got an audience now that are, I think, a bit weary of, of CGI, and they want the, the three-dimensionality of actual on-set practical effects again. And it doesn't, for me anyway, it doesn't get any better than The Thing. So it's interesting to see a new young audience reappreciating a movie like The Thing. Yeah, the whole idea of, of the physical nature of it, I mean, it's so important in a movie like The Thing to have that actual presence of stuff, even though you don't necessarily see too many you know shots where you have the creature and another person in it. I mean, there are certain instances, but there are times where it's like, okay, you know, definitely shot afterwards kind of thing. But it just to have it occupy physical space is just key, I think. Crucial, I think it is. That, that, that is the thing that uh, the thing that really uh, struck me when I very first saw it, actually. But also, I, when I came to reflect upon it, in many ways, you kind of get inured to the, the effect. The more times you see the movie, it's like, well, here we go again. Here's, here's Norris <laughs> doing his thing again. But sometimes, actually, it's the pre-switch uh, to a thing that are the most sort of frightening periods. It's the, it's when you just don't know who is a thing can be particularly frightening. You know, just the, so so the more times you watch it, the more times I watch it anyway. That's what I pick up on in terms of what is what is making me frightened at this point. Because even though obviously I do know what's going to happen, it's just kind of not knowing and kind of in almost inhabiting 
a first-time viewer of the film's appreciation of it, you know, thinking, oh, they don't know who it's going to be, do they? So I, t- I derive a lot of pleasure from watching people watch the movie, now, <laughs> which is a bit creepy, but uh, I, I do, I do do that. <laughs> And I like the way that you examine the whole idea of the the thing as the the other, the, especially when it comes to the thing as the possible female, as opposed to all of these men in this isolated location. Obviously, a movie with no female actors in it, but somehow the otherness of the thing kind of fills that void a little bit to an extent. I do cover the obviously the Norris transformation, the you know, the uh, the. Um, the head coming off at the end of the table, <laughs> scuttling underneath the underneath the table bit, and there's something about the the transformation of that which is quite feminine, the monstrous feminine, which has been you know written about in a lot of critical literature, very much kind of conforms to that, um, probably even more so than the the equally famous scene in Alien, the John Hurt and the, and the alien coming out of him. I think it's particularly indicative of the, the monstrous feminine. So yeah, there's a lot of that in in the movie, I think certainly. Well, yeah, especially when his body cavity kind of becomes that massive vagina dentata. That's right. I didn't want to say, but yeah, you see your spot on. <laughs> the book went over well. I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was really keen to ensure that I kept fans of the movie on side, and I hope I did that. I've not had any negative feedback, although I thought I might be courting it a little bit, but I thought, oh, I'll put it out there and see what I think. So that's gone well, and I feel like I've also... It's helped to lead a few more people who maybe wouldn't have seen the movie to see it. And that's a big driver for me. Going back to your first questions, really, that's a big driver for me when writing about movies is to get people who may not have considered watching a film to actually sit down and watch it. So I seriously hope that that has happened as a result of what what I've done. Was it difficult for you when you were going through the research stage of this to come up with other people who have written about the thing other than Anne's book? Uh, not really. I mean, in a way, I'm in a fortunate position because in my day job, I'm an academic librarian and I'm sitting in a building full of hundreds of thousands of books, many of which, and, and journals, many of which actually cover this sort of area. So I had a ready supply of research at my fingertips, um, which I really drew upon. So the index is quite lengthy. Or the bibliography around is quite lengthy. It wasn't too much of a problem, and it certainly... Uh, in the way that I write, I tend to cross-examine and, and make connections between different people's take on the same material. Um, and that's a big pleasure for me, actually, whenever I'm, I'm writing a book like this. It's just uh, making those connections and, and getting other people's views on these things. So, yeah, lots of lots of research went on and lots of uh, articles were, were, were read as a result of uh, working on this book. After you did this one, you did uh, an appreciation of Dead of Night. How did you come to choose that one? Well, that same night of the where we were talking about uh, uh, which which film would you write about, a colleague of mine who had contributed to the the Dublin book in the uh, location series, we well, as I was staying at his, his place overnight, and we were chatting after the event, and we were saying if we got if we got a chance to write a book together, what would it be? Uh, uh, write a, 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 which film would it be? And uh, we both said that of night simultaneously. It just kind of again naturally lent itself to another another title in the series from our perspective. And we also kind of figured that it lent itself uh, in as much as it's a multi-story movie, uh, five individual stories. And so we could kind of apportion out who was going to write which chapter fairly quickly. That's what we actually did. So a bit of a test for anybody reading the book is to tell you know, which chapter did I write and which chapter did he write. So we kind of collaborated quite neatly over that one. Uh, and we didn't step on each other's toes too, too much at all. But that really, really well. And what are you working on these days? So the latest one is the same um, publisher, Auteur, um, John Atkinson Auteur, has um, 
putting out a new series. So moving on from horror, although the I should say the Devil's Advocates range is still very much alive and kicking, uh, but he's bringing out a new series covering science fiction called Constellations, very similar pr- um, principle as Devil's Advocates, about 30,000-40,000 word uh, monographs. It's out there for, for writers to, to cover a film of their choice, and I've gone for John Fragenheimer's Seconds, which I know you've done a podcast about previously. It's another one of those movies that's really stayed with me over the years when I saw it on, on TV in the 80s. I just couldn't get it out of my head, and it's just lent itself. And I think also often, I find, particularly I think it was with Dead of Night, I didn't want anybody else to write a book about that film before I did. <laughs> and I, to my knowledge, there wasn't a book about Dead of Night prior to ours, and there isn't currently one out about just about seconds either. So I'm going to try and beat somebody to the punch. I want to be the first one, first one to get a book out there about it. So that, that's what's driving me at the moment. It's a completely different kettle of fish to the other two, I have to say. It's, an, it's, it's quite a different sort of challenge, really, to, to the thing in the Dead of the Night book. It's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of approaching it in quite an organic way and, and letting the nature of the film inform the way I'm writing about it rather than taking a cold, analytical approach. It's, it's quite kind of raw and visceral compared to the other ones. So I'll let you know how it goes. It's part way through, um, due out probably later next year, I'd imagine. Well, yeah, definitely let me know, and I'll be sure to spread the word. And I'm very curious to read what you have to say about it, because it does seem like there's a, a whole world going on in that film that I don't think we got even close to when we did the episode on it. Yeah, well, well I, I've listened to a part of it. I will listen to it all the time, so it's run out of time. But I am soaking up every, anything and everything about it at the moment, and I think your, your podcast will be a valuable component within that. So I will definitely listen to all the way through for that one. Well, cool. Well, Jess, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. It's my pleasure. It's good to speak to you, Mike. It seemed like you and Carpenter kind of came together right at the right time. There's this book, uh, I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it, but uh, called Outliers. And it's all about people's success. And, um, you know, he traces uh, sort of uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and computers and the Beatles and various people that achieve success in their particular area. And how is it that that happens? And uh, the conclusion he comes to and, and makes a good case for is that, you know, the right place at the right time is, is hugely important. And also 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours being <clears throat> how much preparation did you put in before your big break? He points out that uh, Jobs and, you know, Bill Gates both were, as uh, students, worked in computer labs and they taught themselves and they got no compensation for doing it. And as a result of putting in this 10,000 hours, when the opportunity arose, they were ready. You know, I look at that and say, oh, well, I can relate to that because, you know, I 
I put in, I have no idea whether it was 10,000 hours, maybe it was only 500, but it's, and it's something I also tell film students. Opportunity will eventually knock. You have to be prepared. And opportunity may knock a second time if you aren't prepared. But, um, you know, it, it, it's better to do your homework and, and do your, you know, training, and you know, which is why I say take any job you can get. That was, I think, one of the, the keys for, you know, the, for a variety of us. We were at the right place at the right time. Um, you know, John and myself and, and um, you know, various other of my colleagues and some, and some of the other directors and all. We, we were at a place where, you know, they still needed B-movies. There was still a market, um, you know, that there's uh, the industry cycles. And, and prior to when we, you know, started, um, we probably couldn't have gotten the job. I, I know I had applied to get into the union and uh, work on, in the studios, and, and they laughed, literally. Prior to that, I couldn't have gotten in. Then shortly after, um, you know, it was also very difficult for new people to break into film. So John and I sort of, you know, fortuitously met at the right place at the right time. And having put in, um, you know, our our training... Yeah, it seemed like you were both probably hungry at that point. As I often say, I think that um, I had worked on a lot of, uh, you know, low-budget films before Halloween, but they were very limited, not only in budget and so forth, as was Halloween, but but also in um, the vision. The, the, the scripts were not uh, great. The performances of the leading people that they could afford were not great. You know, they would sometimes fill in with uh, recognizable faces. But uh, for the most part, we were extremely challenged to try to turn out anything. And a lot of the directors were interested in using the camera to record actors talking. John was a, this great uh, revelation for me because he was interested in using the camera to get the audience sucked into the, the story, visual storytelling. And that's something that I desperately wanted to do so we saw the um you know the same process and the same uh, kind of need for using the camera um to really enhance the storytelling so you know again <clears throat> the right place at the right time i don't know what it was but i missed the fog the first time around and i finally watched it only it was probably 10 years ago but it feels like just recently and I got to tell you, it holds up. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time watching it. Yeah, you know, and I I watched it myself recently, and I I looked at it with you know quite a bit of satisfaction that it was pretty sophisticated for um, you know the time and budget we had and and the uh, the era um, you know the 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 fact that um, you know making a uh, sophisticated low budget film was was pretty tricky. It was a case of um, you know really being a showcase for uh, the skills and talents that we had been developing. So what was it like going from working with uh, Carpenter on all of these films, uh, so many in a row, and then was it much of a, a gear shift to work on Halloween three, or did it feel like kind of a, a continuation? There's quite a continuation i mean uh, 
you know, and, and I think that, um, the, uh, the, the, the legacy aspect of it, you know, the fact that, um, it wasn't like I was a new guy being brought on to shoot, um, you know, a, a sequel to stuff that other people had made. You know, I was sort of the continuing link, um, as was Tommy Wallace and, and, um, you know, everybody involved. We, we sort of knew we were continuing the, the, the legacy, even though it was not a Michael Myers movie. Um, it was, um, you know, still kind of stylistically, but, um, you know, we wanted to uh, sort of continue. So, yes, there was, you know, even though the story was completely different and there weren't any of the same characters, um, you know, we, we still kind of knew the direction we were heading. Well, it's still such a nice, I don't want to say little because I don't want to be dismissive, but it's a nice, tight horror film. Even though it has that Halloween name to it, and it, but yet it doesn't have Michael Myers, it still just tells such a solid story, and it's so well put together. I, I think that was always my aim on any film, was to try to give it a sense of sophistication, no matter what the story, you know. And even, even some of my early exploitation films, I think that you, um, you, you learn the language of film by watching film. And I'd always been an avid um, film goer since I was, you know, at elementary school. It's when I decided I wanted to go into film. So you absorb the technique and how, you know, what shots are effective in what way and so forth. So um, I think I always tried to, uh, you know, upgrade the, uh, the sophistication of the, of the, whatever project uh, to the extent that I could, you know, so I think that was everybody's aim. Um, you know, Tommy uh, Wallace had obviously worked on, um, you know, the original Halloween and so forth. So he, he had a sense of, of the uh, style and everything. It was a case of um, all of us sort of continuing that um, sense of trying to make it a quality uh, thing. Yeah, what were some of the, the challenges with that? I know there were challenges after it was released what, with the marketing and everything, but while you were shooting that, how was it as far as being a, a shoot? Most of those films were always bigger than the the budget and the and the parts that you had. You know, you were always trying to make it bigger than, uh, than you know, the parts movie. So um, it was always trying to get the most on the screen, trying to, um, you know, always create the mood and, and so forth with lighting, which, um, you know, to do painterly lighting takes a little more time and, and, um, effort because, um, you know, it's, and, and that's one of the things I find, you know, disconcerting about contemporary filmmaking is that the film itself and the digital cameras are so fast that, uh, you can, you know, fool yourself into thinking you don't have to do as much lighting. Um, you can get an exposure uh, pretty easily with available light. If you are trying to meet a budget and a schedule, you know, you, you are sometimes opting for things that are not as, you know, quite as sophisticated or whatever. I always sort of fought for the idea that uh, it doesn't matter um, that after it's all over, um, and it's released, the audience won't care how long you took or how long you didn't take or whatever. They just are interested in the 
end result, the movie they're watching. So it's a, it's a case of how do you satisfy that and how do you give the audience the, you know, the, the story and the emotional experience that they deserve, really. It, you know, Halloween 3 was a case of you know, just trying to be as classy as possible. There are some movies that you shot that are better looking than they have a right to be. Galaxina, it's such a cornball movie, but it looks so good. I guess that's sort of been my goal on each film. Make it, uh, you know, that's the other thing I, I, you know, the advice I give to film students who are saying, you know, what's what's the advice for up-and-coming people? And uh, one of the things I tell them is always deliver 110%. Give them more than they expect or deserve even. There's no excuse for ever saying, well, he's not paying me enough, so I'm not going to, you know, add that extra light over there. That's going to take too much time and effort. You know, the end result is always what is left, the film. After you say, well, I, I should have had another $100 a week, but, you know, the film looks really good. So that's what people are going to remember, not the fact that I was underpaid. So you, you always deliver, give them quality whether they want it or not. That's always been my goal and effort, I guess. Halloween 3 is, is a beautiful film, but I have to say one of my favorites that you shot, of course, that always takes my breath away just because of what I imagine to be a very complex shoot is The Thing. So much night photography, the setting and everything. I mean, just the, the way that you caught people's breaths on film. Can you tell me more about how that shoot went down? The Thing, of course, was always one of John's favorites. I mean, uh, in Halloween, one of the movies the kids are watching on TV is The Thing. With the You know, you see the title sequence with the, the uh, fire that burns the, the uh, title on the screen. And there's a couple of um, moments out of the movie. So I know that uh, it had always been one of John's favorites. And, and we discussed it several times, you know, that Howard Hawks and, you know, directing and all that. And uh, when John said he was going to do it, I knew that it was going to be a particular labor of love for him. And it was, again, uh, really sort of the ideal kind of film that I enjoyed making because it was going to be uh, very visual. you know. And, and again, Halloween we shot without any blood. Um, it didn't rely on you know, gore. I said so many um, contemporary horror films do. Um, so I knew that uh, John's approach to the thing was going to be very kind of unique. And, uh, of course, it was with Rob Bottin's very unusual um, creature stuff. My effort was very much about delivering uh, the movie. I was very pleased to, to hear that we were not going to, um, you know, really sort of cheap out in the production value. You know, we the opening sequence, we, we spent uh, almost two weeks on a glacier up in Alaska to get the, uh, the the footage of the helicopter over the glaciers and landing at this you know Norwegian camp and uh, all of that. So so the it opens with production value, which was very you know sort of rewarding to me. And then uh, we built the exterior uh, on this fairly inaccessible area of. Um, you know, Alaska, but Stewart, well, actually Stewart, British Columbia, right on the Alaskan border. 
the set was really nice, and the vistas, it was built so that there were views in all directions, and you really felt the uh, isolation and so forth. So with that kind of um, sensibility as far as a bigger-than-its-parts kind of movie, because, you know, again, it was relatively uh, low-budget, uh, even though it was a, an actual uh, studio movie, you know, and, and more than we were used to, but every dollar got spent on you know, elevating the movie. And, of course, John being the, the great visual storyteller that he is, you know, uh, I knew that we were going to be doing interesting camera moves and potentially interesting uh, lighting and the night exteriors, you know, we developed a whole technique. I tested uh, all kinds of blue lights to put in the snow and, and found that uh, aircraft taxi lights had a great dark blue on fa on film. And, uh, you know, so there was quite a bit of thought and effort that went into the details. And rigging the uh, the set, we the hallway set and the interiors were on stages at Universal. Um, and, um, you know, so... Uh, I had them hang, you know, industrial shades in the hallway, and then we put little lights behind it so that it would light the ceiling. And you know, it was a it was a case of thoughtfully um, trying to, you know, do as much to uh, elevate the film as possible. And um, um, you know, working with Rob on on very carefully lighting the um, the creature stuff, so it it came out as as uh, interestingly and believably as possible. We refrigerated one of the stages, a whole stage at Universal, for the interior of the Norwegian camp so that they could see the breath of the actors. It was before the days, of course, and now it, they can just add breath with a computer. But now, uh, you know, but, but then it was had to be done practically. So we went to the effort to, to completely rebuild the set on a stage and refrigerate the stage and, and add humidity so that the uh, breath could be seen and, uh, and light it, backlight it so you could see it. So there was a lot of intent and effort by all parties to deliver a movie that was different and, and as good as possible. And uh, with films as well as, you know, people's careers, it's uh, the right place at the right time. People who aren't doing it just because it's a job, they are, invested in the story and the outcome so i think we were all that with the uh, with the thing as you know various other movies i worked on roger rabbit uh, the same way and you're lucky when and it coincides that everybody involved with the film wants to be there and wants to deliver 110 percent because then you get five thousand and five hundred percent or something like that had you worked on anything as effects heavy before the thing no, you know, and I think that was one of the fun aspects of it, the fact that it was they were going to dedicate so much to the effects work. There's a little bit of visual effects, but, uh, you know, most of it was all, you know, practical effects to the extent that uh, it hadn't been really done before. That was one of the things I um, really sort of enjoyed about it was, uh, once again, doing you know stuff that hadn't been done. I certainly hadn't done it. Yeah, you know, there's there's uh, all kinds of uh, films now where doing the same thing. You know, the, the remake of the thing, for instance, you know, relied so much on computer work 
that you get a lot more flexibility as far as what you can do. But, you know, there's just something about it that that gives it away. I think even even for an audience, that was one of the things I think about the thing that I appreciated and still do in looking back was the fact that so much of it was done as practical effects and still holds up. I feel like an idiot even asking this question, but do you see a difference between the way an actor reacts to something that's going to be put in later with effects versus something that's actually there on the stage? You know, like I'm thinking of that head with the spider legs in the thing versus something, you know, I know that you've, well, hell, you shot Roger Rabbit, but even past that, like where you have actors on on a stage, it's completely green. That's one of those things that I think um, computer has sort of done is allowed a director or a, um, a, whoever is making the film, who's responsible for the film, the studio, whatever, they uh, fix it in post aspect of it, uh, allows them to um, really sort of change their mind later or build scenes that weren't there when you know you were shooting it and, and so forth. So. I think that uh, in, in the case of uh, the cast, the actors seeing what the thing actually looks like, and the the guys sitting over the the creature morphed the uh, the Norwegian uh, with all of the actors looking at it, you know what you're getting are real sort of reactions and and sight lines, you know the the eye lines uh, sometimes are the things that give away an actor looking at something that isn't there. There isn't really that sort of involvement and, and you know, a, a sense that he's really seeing something exactly that distance from him and with that kind of mass and, and so forth. I think that the practical effects, you know, really give an actor something to, to react to. One of the um, advantages to the computer is, of course, you can do much more fantastical stuff than you can do in real life to a practical creature or whatever. But... You know, so there's there's trade-offs, and the trick is trying to find how to give the actor stuff to react to. A guy in a in a green suit with a mask, at least, compared to a tennis ball on a stick or something that um, he you know, he's making up um, his reactions as an actor instead of you know really sort of seeing something and and relating to it. Have you shot any of those uh, tennis ball on a stick kind of movies? Parts of Jurassic Park were tennis balls on a stick. Roger Rabbit was a tennis ball on a stick because, um, you know, there was nothing at all there. We had uh, rubber mock-ups of, the, uh, of Roger and, and the weasels and stuff for the actors to see and relate to, which was, a, I think, a big help, <clears throat> not only for the actor, but also for the camera operator to be able to, you know, judge composition and stuff. It was... It gives a lot more credibility to it. The mix of what was computer generated, what was animatronic, what were puppets, you know, all of that kind of mixed together in Jurassic Park. It was 1993, but I still don't think anything has really topped it. No, and that's one of those things I look back at with, uh, you know, with a certain pride and satisfaction is the, the fact that prior to Jurassic Park, nobody had really done a photorealistic creature in the computer. You know, yeah, there were some fantasy ones and, and so forth, but trying to uh, create an, a creature that looked real hadn't been done. 
it was techniques that had were developed by ILM for uh, Jurassic Park, and of course the, uh, the the care and effort that we put into getting eye lines right and action and in, interactive stuff, moving props and things on the set so that uh, you know the animators could make the dinosaurs hit them and things. All of that was something that I watch now and say, oh, that's not bad. It holds up very well. You know, there are other movies I look at and say, oh, yeah, that that uh, those guys, you know, had trouble with that or, you know, that was very early, you know, creatures. And and even uh, the other films that are coming out now that uh, have, you know, Transformers and things, there's um, a, a lot of moments that, you know, don't ring true, I think, because the sense of timing and weight and all that's important to for an animated creature that you have to take into consideration when you're shooting it, when it's not there, the time you have to allow for for an actor to react and for a camera to move and all that. It, it, it takes some thought, and there was a lot of that we put into uh, Jurassic Park to, to sort of make sure that it, you know, it, it looked real, and and I think that kind of thought and effort pays it off. I always say that so much of it is is due to a director like Stephen who who can visualize the movie in his mind, uh, has the ability to do storyboards that are relevant to the movie, the proper camera angle and perspective and so forth, compared to storyboards that you know are, are more generic as far as following a script or whatever. By one of the things I always say when people ask about storyboards and their value, I say that, you know, that if you just give a script to a storyboard guy and he sits in a room he, he and tell him to draw the storyboards, he's going to make his own movie. You know, you always have to do thumbnails as Stephen does. He, he always sketches a fairly good rendition of what he wants the angle and shot to be. And the guys that he works with, uh, you know, know how to interpret his his vision. It really takes care to pre-visualize a movie like that and and make sure that it's all the right pieces. Now, you took one turn in the director's chair that I know of as far as doing a feature. And actually, I tried to get a hold of you way back when, uh, 1997, when you're doing, what, Honey, We Blew Up Ourselves? Uh, honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. We Shrunk Ourselves, thank yeah. you. I was mix- I was conflating that with the uh, Blew Up, blew up the, baby. the Baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How was that? How was uh, doing directing? Uh, I enjoyed it very much. I would, uh, I'd love to do it again. I uh, have a couple of projects that uh, are very appealing that uh, you know need some rewriting and you know and I went out and pitched uh, some uh, ideas uh, in the past uh, it it was a great experience I enjoyed it it was once again it was sort of doing stuff that uh, people hadn't done that way before we did a lot of computer compositing um, compared to um, you know uh, photochemical to compositing with film in a in a printer. It was still a case of uh, having to devise some techniques to make uh, people look little in a real world. That to me was a, a was a really fun project, and it was uh, you know we were budgetarily challenged. Uh, Disney had been planning to make it as a regular feature for like forty million. Then they said, well, let's let's test the DVD market. Let's make it as a direct-to-DVD. How little can we make it for? 
So um, they said, well, uh, if we sell this many things and $6 million. So it went from a $40 million budget to $6 million. We had to figure out how to do that. It was written down a little. Some of the uh, sequences were less grandiose. So it suffers a little bit from that. And I wish we'd had more computer work, computer capability, and the ability to do more more shots. That film now, if I were to do it, would be hopefully quite a bit better, you know, because it, you know we could do a lot more with the action sequences and stuff. For the time and the money and the budget and, and everything, it was, to me, a great experience, and I would love to do it again. You know, you've worked with so many different people over the years, um, directors, I'm thinking. Who've, who have been your favorite to work with? Well, I always point to the, the three of Carpenter, Zemeckis, and Spielberg as being the top three. I mean, and I think, you know, the common thread for them is the fact that they are really good visual storytellers and they appreciate the use of the camera and uh, they appreciate, uh, you know, any input that I can give as well as anyone else that uh, enhances, you know, the, the storytelling. Those three guys, I think, by virtue of their interest in, um, you know, collaborating um, were or are probably my three favorites. From what I understand, you weren't always in acting, that you actually kind of got thrust into it. Is that right? I kind of uh, uh, somersaulted into it. I was a high school gymnast, and I got a full scholarship from uh, Central High School in Philadelphia, uh, where I grew up, to USC. And um, it was 1969, 1970, my first uh, year out here. There was a guy from the drama department who used to come by to work, to watch the gymnasts work out and everything. And we struck up a conversation and, and kind of became sort of friendly. And one day he came up to the gym. And by the end of my first year as an athlete, I realized I was not going to make the Olympic team. I mean, for my body weight and type, I would have had to have been 10 pounds lighter. And there was just no way I could have done that and been healthy, you know, in terms of just the mechanics of, uh, of gymnastics and it would have required a superhuman effort on my part. And so I kind of was getting bored with the sport because I, I couldn't get past a certain place. And Andrew, uh, came into the, um, the gym one day and said, Hey, Joel, Hey, Andrew, what's going on? He said, listen, they're, they're doing a production of West side story. Well, you ought to go over there and see if they need a tumbler or something. So, the odd thing is that the year before my last year in high school, I had dated a girl from a nearby high school who had played anybody's in a high school production of West side story. 
So I would go over and work out with the gymnastic team at Abington High School. Their coach, Bob Stout, had been on the 1954 Olympic team. So I used to go over there because he was a great coach. And when I would finish workout, I would go over and watch this girl, Karen, rehearse West Side Story. And I would sit there and I'd think, no, that's not right. No, that, no, no, that doesn't sound right. No, what's going on? Yeah, it was really funny. But I mean, I already had a sense of what was honest, you know, when people were speaking uh, on the stage. So the following year when Andrew came and I, and I went to their, I went to their opening night party and it was an all night wild party. I got home for the first time in my life. I was 17 at six o'clock in the morning. And I was so in love with the entire experience of the, of the drama club and what they were doing and who they were. They seemed to be having a lot more fun than me. And, um, so when Andrew came into the gym and asked me that, I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to, so I go over to the stopgap theater in, at USC, which is down near the Coliseum. I walked in and they were doing these, uh, the first day was acting, uh, auditions. They were doing West Side Story. I walked in out of nowhere and all these kids were in the theater department and stuff. And I walked in and, and the director looked at me and he went, yeah, okay, we'll read this part. So I came in and read it and I was spot on. You know, and and heads were turning and looking at like, who's who's this guy? Blah blah blah. So the next day were these dance tryouts, and I figured they all had dance experience and all that kind of stuff. Forget about it. I was a I was a, a university gymnast. I was more athletically trained. I was more flexible and strong and and you know than any of them. So I, I just kind of blew away the dance audition because I had a great sense of rhythm. And the next day I came in and had to sing. And I had been in a junior high school choir and I knew that I could carry a tune and I was kind of pitch perfect and I had rhythm and all that. And so I sang on that Thursday and every day I was getting these hostile looks from everybody. And they cast me in as Arab in this wonderful production of West Side Story, John Ritter, played my, uh, the riff, the head of the, of the Jets, and he was my riff. Uh, John Ashton from Beverly Hills Cop played Lieutenant Shrank. Uh, Jack Bender played Chino. He went on to be the producer of Lost. I mean, it was just chock full of people who were... Uh, uh, Paul Link, who, who was on Chips, had a series, this series Chips for a while. He played Action. And so my first production... <laughs> was with all these people who were connected to the business. And I shined because it was an athletic and a very physical production. And I was completely at home with that, you know? So that was my entrance to acting. And once I found it, once opening night happened, I remember I came out on stage and with the audience there, I mean, it was like a light bulb went off and I just thought, Oh, thank God. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Not gymnastics. I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm, it just, all that other crap just melted away. And suddenly I thought, I'm an actor. And that was it. I never looked back. How do you break that to your folks? Oddly enough, you should mention that. My mother, who I had not seen in like five months, flew out to Los Angeles for opening night. Because, you know, she wanted to see me. And I told her I was doing this play and everything. And the curtain came down. I, 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 
everybody took their bows. The audience was leaving, and I, I walked out on the stage, and I walked down the steps, and my mom was standing there in, like, the center aisle looking at me, and I came over, and I said, well, what'd you think? And she just looked at me with this shocked expression on her face and said, I didn't know you could do that. And that, that was, I, I felt like she gave me the stamp of approval, and I could go ahead and, and go after that. Are you going right into your next stage production? What what's kind yes, of the, actually, the trajectory? The the director of that show had for the last two or three years taken a company of actors to the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland and done performances and done and did a, a repertory of plays with this company he called the American Festival Theatre. And he invited me to come with him and told me that he would pay for my travel and pay for everything. And so I never got to go home that summer. I packed up a duffel bag and a, I bought a buckskin jacket and a cowboy hat. And off I flew to uh, Europe and we toured through Germany and we toured. We went to Cambridge and played and we played in London at the Genetic Cochrane Theatre these two or three plays and then we started rehearsing and we got to Edinburgh in August. We had to build the theater and if you weren't building, it was in a gymnasium at a woman's college. And if you weren't building the theater and I ended up doing all hanging all the lights cause they were way high up 34, 30 feet off the, off the ground and everybody was scared to go up there. And so I was on the ladders up there hanging lights and stuff like that. We built the theater. If you weren't, building the theater, you were rehearsing. And they did a season of about nine plays. And I was in eight of them because of my versatility. It was just crazy. I, I basically, I was either sleeping, not very long either, or I was rehearsing or performing. And we performed from one thirty in the afternoon and we'd close up shop at 1.30 in the morning. We were doing four plays a day uh, for the audiences in Edinburgh. This is 1970. And you're just going roll to roll to roll to roll throughout the day. I just, yeah. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just was working on instinct. It was, but it was like a full, a full deck of interesting and uh, Tennessee Williams, William Inge, Eugene O'Neill, Izzy Horowitz, it, it was just an amazing, you know, uh, the boys in the band. We did the first Scottish production of the boys in the band, which was like this breakout gay play that had just been done in New York a couple of years before. And here we rolled in with that. And like, I knew nothing about the gay community or whatever, but we, you know, we went and did it, you know, it was just, <laughs> it was a hell of an experience. And I, I finally, um, I stopped off in Philadelphia for three nights before I went back to USC to start my second year of college. That's like a, a such a crash course. Oh, it was a complete crash course. And I launched into uh, a couple of acting classes. I finally got to go to a couple of acting classes and figure out what the fuck I was doing. And it introduced me to a lot of really wonderful people and, and started me off uh, on this ride that I've been on since I was 18. Now, what are some of those roles after you graduate from school? What are what are you doing as a, a working actor in Los Angeles? After USC, there was a in my third year, I dropped out of school because I didn't think I was getting the roles I deserved, and I joined the circus for a few months. 
So I did that for three months and, and standing in the Voms at the Cow Palace in San Francisco and watching two tight wire, wire walkers fall off the wire 55 feet. One of them was seriously injured. The other was okay. He caught the wire and hung on. I thought, it's just a matter of time. I'm going to get killed here. <laughs> so I quit and I was at the Greyhound bus station in, in uh, Mill Valley, California, which was still, San Francisco still had that kind of Ferlinghetti, uh, uh, um, Ginsburg, yeah, and Carraway. I mean, it really still had that feel. It was kind of the seaport, and that whole Bay Area was enchanted when I first got there in 69, 70. Um, amazing. And so I was in Mill Valley, and I was looking through some magazines on a, a magazine rack, and on the back page was an advertisement for the NYU School of the Arts. I jumped on a plane. I flew to New York, where I hadn't been since I was 12 years old with my parents, visiting the Statue of Liberty. I enrolled in the summer program, and I then flew to New York and started attending school in New York. At the end of that um, six-week course, uh, my teacher, who went on to become the dean of Yale Drama School, said, go back, finish up your undergraduate degree get a graduate degree from a good university. And I said, where? He said, Juilliard, NYU, Yale. And I went, okay. And in April of that year, I got into Yale and NYU, um, their master's programs. So I went to Yale drama school for three years. I, I flew back from USC to Yale and, and spent three, some, uh, three years there. And then I went down to New York and started a, a career in the theater. Man, just such a whirlwind. Yeah, and uh, fueled by that complete confidence and passion of youth. You know, I mean, I, I remember when I got to New York, it was a tough time the first couple of years. And I just thought, you know what? I am not going to make my living from anything but theater and, and acting. And I set myself that goal, and then I promptly starved for about a year. But after that, I I got my first off-Broadway show, and then yeah, it was a huge hit, and uh, I got a bit of notoriety from that. And then I started working at the regional theaters, and then I came back to New York, and I worked off-Broadway and started doing commercials. And I, you know, I started kind of doing that thing, and then The Thing brought me back to Los Angeles. How did you get the role of The Thing? Was that your agent setting that up? Yes, my agent set up the um, the audition, and when I heard they were doing the thing, you have to understand, if you were a kid growing up in the 50s and 60s, that was on TV, like, you know, every third Saturday afternoon, and it was a terrifying movie, 1951, uh, from the 50s, you know? And so when I heard they were doing the thing, I got really excited, and I ran over to the... Um, at Midtown somewhere and I met John and Lawrence Foster and uh, they called me back to read for the part and uh, John and I clicked at the first meeting because uh, he went to USC and he had actually seen me do a student film the only one I did and he remembered me from a particular moment in the film and I was like startled but God bless him you know so when they cast me in the thing uh, I I was thrilled, and I, uh, you know, that was uh, the beginning of my return to Los Angeles and the beginning of a film and TV career. 
Were you always Fuchs? Is that the role that you read for? Oh, yeah. Bill Lancaster wrote, uh, described Fuchs as intelligent, sensitive, unassuming. That was all he said. And I guess I fit the bill because John cast me. What was the rehearsal process like for that one? Well, John usually doesn't rehearse, but he had a bunch of theater actors and on his hands. Uh, Charlie Hallahan went, went to uh, uh, ACT in San Francisco, the American Conservatory Theater. Uh, Keith, David, Tommy Waits uh, went to Juilliard. Mazur, Clennon, and myself were from Yale Drama School. And, um, and, Dice, and um, uh, Moffat was from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Or the or RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. So he had like eight out of twelve or nine out of twelve theater actors on his hands. So we we basically we read the script a few times and then we we got on our feet and we kind of started rehearsing it. And when we were finished, we started filming. At the end of the shoot, John said, "I will never rehearse." another movie before I start shooting it. He'll, I, I think he's changed his mind because during that time we were a theater company. We were a theater group and we were making relationships and forming bonds and getting to know each other and finding out each other's quirks. And, and instead of being total strangers, by the time we started fil filming, we kind of had a feel for each other. We knew each other. And I think that shows up it's especially in the communal scenes in the in the movie, you know the blood test scene, the uh, when we're all in the rec room talking about the thing, those relationships show up, and there's um, I don't know, it's it it may be subliminal, but I I really believe it's there. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. There's an an easiness that you guys have with each other where it feels like you've been working together for a long time. It doesn't right. feel like you just showed up to Antarctica two days before. Right. Right. Thank you. I, I, I really think that that was a result of us getting to know each other and beginning to work with the characters and with each other uh, during the rehearsal period. Did things change during that rehearsal period? Were there, yes. was there any? Yes. Okay. My original death, I don't know if you know this, I have a great Polaroid of me hanging on a door with a shovel in my chest, covered in ice and blood and dirt, and waving to whoever's taking the picture. It's really funny. And, and John, when he saw that, that death uh, image, he stopped and thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that's a, that's a, a, a slasher movie. That's not a thing. He said, the thing is just trying to stay alive. It's not like out to murder people or, you know what I mean? So, so when we got to Antarctica, he had a complete, I mean, when we got to, to British Columbia, he had a completely different death for me. The one you see on screen. Or the one that we don't necessarily see on screen. Or the screen. one that you don't see on screen, it's true. So there was an, an evolution of the script as we were going along. Some, some young guy from England uh, contacted me the other day and asked me if I would answer a few questions about it, about the filming. And, I, and what I said to him that was really true from the special effects to the editing to the script, it was in process as we were doing it. 
Um, we were discovering how to shoot the film, how the special effects were working, what was working, what wasn't working, and my hats off completely to John, who really was the general of that army, and he had some incredible commanders on the field. And he just trusted them to do their thing, and he oversaw it and pulled it all together, and you, the movie that you have is the one you see. I mean, there is one thing I would really change if I could go back and change it, you know, one or two scenes but uh, for myself, but it was a work in progress and John and Rob Bottin and Dean Cundy were on fire. They were, their imaginations were working overtime and that's why the film works. They trusted a process as opposed to having everything nailed down. You know, I have to ask what those things would be that you would change. Oh, it was 1980. And I would have had Blair and myself in hazmat suits. Ah, right, right. You know? And I would have had the cast step far away or behind some kind of plastic something. or We didn't know what this thing was, if it was dangerous, if it was, you know, contained. We, you know, we just didn't know. And for us to go in there with, with a couple of rubber gloves and a, and a butcher knife was silly. was silly, you know, but... I mean, other than that, uh, it, it was what it was. And it stayed actually pretty faithful to the 1939 short story, Who Goes There, by John W. Campbell. I'm curious. You, you talked about all of those just amazing guys that you were working with, even yeah. in your very first production. Yeah. And you've worked with some some great, great actors over the years. Uh-huh. Was there ever a moment, uh, probably, and I imagine this is, probably maybe earlier on in your career, was there ever a moment where you just looked around and you were working with people and you just said, Oh, I, I know that guy from this movie or from this TV show. Was there ever a moment where you felt, I don't want to use the word starstruck, but maybe a little intimidated by some of the people that you're working yeah, with. Yeah, but not, it wasn't the thing because those guys were mostly my age. Right. I'd, I'd seen Don Moffat at the long Wharf theater on stage. Uh, I'd seen Kurt since I was a kid but most recently, I saw him in, as Elvis. I was watching TV one night, and I'm watching this guy, and I'm going, Jesus Christ, this guy's fantastic. Who is this? And then it said, you know, a film by John Carpenter starring Kurt Russell, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to go work with these guys. I didn't even recognize Kurt. He was so brilliant in that. Now, there's a guy who's just talented from every cell of his body and without training completely instinctual. He's a great actor. He's one of the underrated American theater uh, uh, cinema actors, actually. That's what I believe. When I first got to L.A., after the film came out, the thing came out, I worked with Carl Malden, and I was totally starstruck. Uh, I, I was scared to do a scene with him when I started out. Isn't that funny? But, you know, he was completely generous and wonderful. But, yeah, yeah, it was like that. I know when the thing came out, it was not necessarily enjoyed by critics and audiences stayed away in droves, but did it help open any doors for you? No. What happened was Universal was supposed to open a movie the week after E.T. opened and the week before Poltergeist opened. But the film that they were going to bring out, I think it was The Cat People, Johnny Heard, wasn't ready. So... The thing was, so they rushed the rushed up finishing it up, 
And basically, without any publicity or very little, they stuck us in between those two films. And of course, E.T. was a history-breaking movie uh, in terms of box office. And everybody who hadn't seen it the first weekend was out there seeing it the second weekend, the weekend we opened. And then the third weekend, because we got cool reviews, everybody ran out to see Poltergeist, so they didn't go see the thing. So it kind of faded very quickly. And I was, frankly, a little bewildered as well as disappointed. What happened? You know, there was no there was no foreplay, basically. They weren't preparing the public for its becoming of the thing, you know. So um, that's what happened there. I did get one audition after that for the right stuff. And I think Dennis Quaid got the part that I read for. But um, yeah, yeah, other than that, it was funny because I didn't work for a year or a year and a half after the movie opened. At the end of that year and a half, I got in the car and I drove back to Los Angeles and for an audition. And I hadn't been to L.A. in eight years. And... I didn't get that, but the third week I was here, I booked my first guest star on Remington Seal, and so I stayed. Yeah, you've only been in, like, what, a little over 100 different TV shows, movies, TV movies? 120, something like that. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, a couple couple things here and there. And a couple score, a, a few scores of professional plays, which take... That takes three months. That's not a one day shoot or a three day or a week shoot. That's you do a play, you're in it for three to four to five, sometimes six months, you know? I'm curious, over your, this is probably an unfair question, but over your career, what have been some of your favorite roles to play? Well, I love doing Fuchs. I'm, if I knew then what I know now, there are a couple things I would, I, I would shift in terms of my, my performance, but that was my first film, and um, I was learning as I was going. I'd never been in front of a camera like that. I, I would have to say that mostly my favorite parts have been in the theater because in the theater, I actually get to do what I can do. Um, I did love doing Gary on Cheers and I loved playing uh, Riley and Seinfeld. And I loved, there were a couple of guest starring roles like on Moonlighting and also a, a TV show called the Misfits of Science, uh, Northern Exposure, Picket Fences, there were some terrific roles along the way. I loved Misfits of Science, by the way. Oh, you did? Yeah. Did, did you really? I played twins. And would, would remember that episode. Do you? I was a motorcycle um, uh, uh, racer. And I had a twin brother who was living somewhere else. And I didn't know I had a twin. We had separated at birth. And I kept having these headaches and having this feeling that there was something. I didn't know what was going on. Now, here's the kicker. I have an identical twin brother. So when they found that out, they flew him out from Philadelphia and he did the over the, he did the over the shoulder stuff. So I played both parts, but they would dress him up to look like me in the other part while they had the camera on me. But he was right there. You, uh, I don't know how to say this in a nice way, but I, I guess I can just say it. You play a jerk really well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, there's no secret to it. You just have a good time, enjoy yourself. You come off like a real jerk, you know? I mean, Mike Huckabee. Gary was such a great nemesis to Sam Malone. <laughs> he was. He was. I, I, You know, they pulled me in on that on a moment's notice. It wasn't until the, the, the Bloody Mary contest that I really, I hadn't done a sitcom before. 
so it, it was a different animal. I'd never learned that much dialogue and gone in front of an audience, a TV audience. And you know what? And so it was a different animal. But when I did the Bar Wars episode, it kind of all clicked. The, uh, the Bloody Mary contest with Woody Harrelson. And that was, that was like, that was another, that was another guest star that I I just loved doing. That particular episode was really great for me. Are there any roles, and I know this is kind of unfair because we can't necessarily include the, the, the uh, theater work, but are there any roles where if you were to recommend somebody check out your work, what would those roles be as far as TV and, and movies? On my reel currently, I've got a, a, an episode of Castle where I was playing one of, I was playing a, a dirty New York police detective who was involved in the murder of, of the, the girl's mother, uh, of the woman who plays uh, on Castle. That was a really good episode for, for me. And what else to check out? I did a short for an AFI, that's the American Film Institute, uh, a thesis project called Shadows. And I played a, 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 pedoph- a pedophiliac murderous capo in a concentration camp and uh, i'm really good in that and it's uh um yeah it's, that's uh, that's one of my that's one of my best performances on film i got to play a polish jew who went around beating up the other jews in the concentration camp so you know uh, but it, it was a real morality um uh movie so that one the moonlighting was a great scene for me with with Willis and, and Sybil Shepherd, and it's kind of a mixed bag when you're an actor. I, I'm I'm of the Michael Caine school of acting. Take the jobs when they then when they appear. Don't turn anything down because you don't know when you're going to work again. I know you grew up uh, in uh, Philadelphia. How young were you when you moved to New York? Okay, so I first came to New York when I was 17 to audition for the Juilliard School. And then, um, you know, I was lucky enough to get accepted. So I moved here when I was 18. And uh, I guess that was the fall of 74. And that was my first sort of introduction to the city because I grew up in a place called Levittown, which is right outside of Philadelphia, Levittown and Bristol. And um, it's kind of like a a blue-collar, lower-class factory town. So New York City was a very (laughs) different experience for me. It was, yeah, I was like, what what is this? I mean, first of all, it was such an amazing thing to get to go to Juilliard because, you know, here I was this kind of, I, again, I use the word lower class, not to demean my upbringing, but, you know, we, we didn't have much money. And all of a sudden here I was in this world-class elite school 
with the greatest musicians and dancers and, I guess, actors and opera singers in the world. So it was a tremendous immersion into the arts. I mean, I started watching opera, listening to classical music, and, you know, things that I never even dreamed I would do. So it was the beginning of a profound change in my personal makeup. I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity because thousands and thousands of people audition for that school every year. And, you know, I just kind of took it for granted, you know. Now, New York has such a, a, a rich tradition of theater. How soon after graduation, or were you still in school when you started to get into theater? I got kicked out after three years. <laughs> I was a real pain in the ass, let me tell you. Uh, if you looked up pain in the ass in the dictionary, you would have seen me as a 17, 18-year-old kid. I just drove everyone crazy. Yeah, so they kicked me out after three years, and I was desperate for the summer. I didn't have any place to live. I had no money. I was going around begging for jobs and restaurants and everything. But I still had the training that I received in those three years, and I practiced my monologues every day. And sure enough, I got a couple of auditions, and I started working the fall after I'd gotten out of school. So I got kicked out in June, and by September I was working. One of the, your earliest things, at least on IMDb, is The Other Side of Victory. Did you shoot that in New York, or did you have to go to California for that? Upstate New York. That was a revolutionary war film. It was a, a PBS movie celebrating the um, uh, revolution. It was a revolutionary war film with uh, a Billy Sanderson, William Sanderson, a very fine actor who was in it. Uh, Kevin Klein had a little bit of extra in it. Uh, that was my very first film. Before that, I had done a couple of plays professional. Now, were you still a pain in the ass when you were working on these movies? Yes, and sort of no, because I was so grateful not to be starving and living on people's couches. I was now beginning to be able to pay the rent, and so I was so humbled by that experience, so I became slightly less of a pain in the ass, but still very opinionated. I've always been a very opinionated person. You worked with some tremendous casts. I mean, you mentioned the the cast of uh, Other Side of Victory. I mean, and the cast of uh, um, On the Yard is just tremendous as well. Great actor, John Hurd, uh, Joe Bufasi, Mike Cohen, Richie Bright. Well, great actors. Dominic Canese was in it. This is, I mean, I had the best education a, a guy could ever, you know, dream of because of the fact that I was lucky enough to get to work with these great people, you know. Can you tell me, what was your experience like on the Warriors? <laughs> I got fired from the Warriors. <laughs> but, you know, in my defense, okay, now, I again, I was a pain in the ass. I take complete responsibility for it. I don't know if I would have fired me. I might have given me a warning, you know. I mean, they were going to fire Al from the Godfather, too. They at least were decent enough to give him a warning. I wasn't that bad. I mean, I was asking way too many questions. And what I should have done in retrospect, of course, Monday morning quarterback, 
I should have gone to my agent with my complaints because the director and I had agreed to make one kind of movie, and when we got to the set, we were making another kind of movie, you know? And I was like, hey, what is this? We talked about this being a love story, you know? This is like a fucking... The violence is like cartoon-like. And he's like, he didn't like that. And I don't blame him. But I didn't go through the proper channels. What happened is, it was supposed to be Thomas Wink in The Warriors. But um, after I got fired, they said, where do you want your billing to be? Because obviously it can't be that. So they sent me a copy of the movie. And I told them to take my name off it. <laughs> I was an arrogant son of a bitch. I really wish I hadn't done that. It's one of my top five regrets in my life. It was just an arrogant, belligerent, senseless, uh, you know, action on my part. And, and I regret it. Did you and Walter Hill ever kind of patch things up? Yeah, I, I reached out to Walter in, uh, I, yeah, I think it was 89, 88 or 89, and he was nice enough to return my call. And I said, listen, you know, Walter, I I really feel bad, and I'm sorry. And he's like, that's all right. You know, I just wish you hadn't taken your name off the movie. That kind of really pissed me off. And I said, like, I don't blame it. You know? um, and then he was actually um, nice enough to bring me in to audition for... Um, was it Johnny Handsome? I think he was casting Johnny Handsome at the time. And I went in and I read for it, and you know, obviously I didn't get it. But that was still, I thought, very, you know, big of him uh, to, you know, say, like, okay, everything's great now, you know. And um, I've subsequently written a letter to kind of formalize the, you know, when you get older, you, you look back on shit you did when you were a kid, and you go, what the fuck was I thinking? What was I thinking? You know? And I wasn't the kind of person that you could go, hey, Tom, you know, why don't you think about this? Because I was, I have a profound propensity for self-absorption, as I think most actors do. How quickly after the Warriors did you meet Al Pacino and were you on uh, Injustice for All? It was like two weeks. <laughs> I, I, I think I got fired right around this time. I'll never forget it. It was like the beginning, middle of August, I got fired. And, you know, it was, it was, it was not easy. And um, I realized I was in the wrong. And so I immediately I, I went into therapy. I joined a, a karate class, and I started studying martial arts very seriously because I thought, you know, this is a lack of discipline. You getting fired. And I also had quit a Broadway show by this point, too. And I was all 23 years old. So I knew I, I had some problems. Um, and then I'd say right around this time, I went in an audition for Norman Jewish and an owl. And that's a funny story, too, because the audition was at uh, Martin Bregman's office, who was Al's manager at the time. And... <laughs> My agent said, listen, you have this audition for this movie called Injustice Ball, and you're going to be reading with Al Pacino. And I was like, great. This is fucking awesome. He was my idol growing up as a kid. So I get to the office, and the appointment's at, let's say, 2.10, right? So I get there, and I see Al, 
and he's coming out of the office and he says to the secretary, look, I have to, I have a dentist appointment. I have to go. And I, I never saw this guy before in my life, except in the movies. I go, excuse me, um, I was supposed to read with you and you're leaving. I mean, what the fuck? My agent told me I was going to be auditioning with you. And he looks at me, I come from outer space, you know. <laughs> of the character, the need of the character is what's important to us. So I did that, and it was a great experience, and it kind of redeemed me a little bit. And that is such a tremendous movie and such a tremendous role. I mean, gosh, that that, that film still stands up. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I thought it was great. I loved working with Norman Jewish. He's an underrated, great director. He's still working, too. He's 80 years old, and he's up in Canada trying to get movies done. What were you doing before you got into the thing? After Injustice for All, you know, I, <laughs> I w- realized that I was, again, I was very fortunate to be working with one, one of the, the world's greatest actors, one of the top five greatest actors in the history of our country, probably. And, you know, my intuition said, you know, give the guy a gift because, you know, he, he was responsible for helping you to get this job. I mean, he must have liked your audition or whatever. So I brought him a bottle of Anisette to his trailer. And I said, listen, I just want to say thank you. It was a great experience. And he goes, what's that? I go, it's Anisette. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't drink that anymore. I don't drink anymore. And I'm like, oh, I was like so embarrassed. I was a kid. You know, I was 23. I, I didn't even know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. Jesus, I'm sorry. He goes, no, but thank you for the gift. You know, it's very generous of you. And so, you know, that's that. And then about six weeks later, my agent called me and said, Al's doing Richard III. And he wants you to come in and audition for it. So I went in and I auditioned for it and I got the part. And we worked together on that for, you know, about six months or so. And then the interesting story about that is the day that I was leaving the show, uh, I said, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this play, Richard III. The play you should be doing is this. And I dropped the copy of American Buffalo on his dressing table. And I walked, I walked away and I thought, well, I'll never see this guy again, you know. And then again, six minutes later, my agent calls me and says, Al wants you to come to his apartment and read American Buffalo with him and another actor. <laughs> I said, all right. <laughs> so he lived on the east side at the time. And I went up and we read the play. We sat and talked. And, you know, that was it. That, that's all. Then... I was away doing Shakespeare for the summer in Cleveland, 
And my agent calls and says, Al's doing American Buffalo up at the Long Wharf Theater Center, and they want you to audition. I said, well, they're going to have to fly me out because I don't have the money to go out there and audition. I'll call, I'll call you right back. They'll pay for half the ticket. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll do it. So I flew out. I auditioned for Arvin Brown. I got the part. I'll never forget this day as long as I live. Every actor from Matt Dillon to Kevin Bacon to you name it, wanted that part. And they went in and auditioned and auditioned and Al called me at home and he said, oh, they made you an offer, huh, kid? <laughs> it was like talking to Michael Corleone, you know? Uh, I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> so um, I was doing American Buffalo and we brought it into New York City and of course it was a huge hit, you know, lines around the block. Uh, from the day they opened the box office, there were lines around the block. And Kurt Russell and John Carpenter just happened to see the show. And as good fortune would have it, John asked me to come in and audition for his movie, The Thing. And I did. And, you know, I was never a big science fiction guy, but I certainly liked John Carpenter. And um, I auditioned and I got the part. And that's how the thing came about. Did you audition for Windows? I actually, the character's name was John Simmons. <laughs> and John Carpenter arranged for us to have two weeks of rehearsal. So in the rehearsal room one day, I wore, because, you know, L.A. is so sunny and hot all the time. I had these green sunglasses, and I wore them into the rehearsal room, and I said, John, I want everybody to call me Windows from now on. <laughs> and he goes, Windows? Hmm. And he goes, and he points to the glasses like, oh, that's why. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, okay, that sounds good. So from then on, everybody called me. <laughs> it's the only movie in the world before computers to have Mac and Windows in both movies. I mean, both names in, in one movie. What was your experience like on it? Oh, it was freaking heaven on earth. Are you kidding? I was making a ton of dough. I had a brand new car. I was living in Venice. There were more beautiful women in Los Angeles after me than I could count. And I had a ball. I mean, it was like one, it was like a four-month party. And I sure had a great time, I have to say. I had a great time. I made great friends. Joel Polis, Keith David, Kurt, who, you know, I don't see anymore, but he did come to one of my acting classes when I was living in Los Angeles and he sat in on the class and he talked to the students and he did improvs with them. You know, he's a great guy. He's just, you know, he's hard to get a hold of, but he's a phenomenal human being. I mean, I wish that, uh, you know, somebody would give him like a lifetime achievement award or something. You know? I mean, here you are, this uh, much more of a city kid, Working up in uh, what British Columbia is that where we're shot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, British <laughs> Hyder, Alaska, and British Columbia. It, it's pretty remote up there, you know. I mean, and I'm not the outdoors type, so it was uh, you know people love shit like that glaciers and you know eagles and moose and all that kind of bullshit. But for me, it was like. It wasn't that great, but I certainly wish I had the chance to do that again. You know, it was great. It was a great experience. John gave me one of the greatest experiences of my life. And, 
you know, the benefits and the rewards of it have, you know, they've just been exponential, you know. I mean, between residuals and signing autographs, that movie has helped my family and I tremendously. Yeah, I don't think you had ever worked with any special effects or that many special effects. What was that experience like? I didn't know what a special effect was. I mean, I was so completely clueless with regard to that, that Rob Bertin was doing something that basically had never been done before. And it's before computer graphics. And it was, uh, it was quite ingenious, but he was able to pull off, and I had no appreciation of it at the time. I, I really... I wish again I had, you know, it's one of those things that you get back to because you see the movie now, it's phenomenal what he was able to do. I'm sorry about the noise, Mike, it's New York, you know. I know that the script underwent a lot of changes, or the movie went underwent a lot of changes while it was being filmed. Was your uh, were you affected by that at all, or did it? Pretty well, much not really. Not, no, not really. I mean, you know, that was more Kirk and Keith and John because they they didn't know how to end it, and John wanted to end it one way, and I think the studio wanted to end it another way, and they shot two different endings. I wasn't really privy privy to any of that, so it didn't really affect me. You know, John's the kind of director where he figures, look, I cast you. You know, my job's done. You know, you'll do it from here. This is your, you know, <laughs> he would play video games in between takes, you know. <laughs> he was like a big teenager. It's a really fun guy. You know, a really fun guy. I miss him, to tell you the truth. Okay. He was a great leader. That, that, that guy was a great leader. It just seems like such a, a an amazing amount of talent all on one film. I mean, between the people in front of the camera and behind the camera, I mean, it just seemed like a, a just a winning, winning team. Being Kundi, talented people, you know. I've asked you about a lot of, of these roles that you've been in. What have been some of your favorite ones? So far, Injustice for All is my favorite film performance, but I'm hoping to change that. You know, I'm hoping to get something... Like, I'm doing a play off-Broadway now called Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N, like the name of the city. And uh, I'm playing the character of Austin, and, you know, he's a really conflicted guy trying to get his family back together. He, he discovers he's homosexual, you know, which I'm not, but I enjoy playing one because of the stretch involved and the talent necessary to pull it off, you know, a conflicted man. And, you know, I wish I could do something like that on a film to really show my range. But that hasn't happened yet. doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And, you know, I've done a lot of TV, a lot of NYPD glue and Law and & Order and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, and they've been good. I mean, I enjoy television, too. When did you start the acting studio? Uh, I guess I actually started teaching 2000 here in New York City. Truth be told, I had been teaching long before then, way back in the 70s. Like when I was doing movies and I was like a hot young actor, I just said, you know, I want to teach because, you know, people would come up to me and they'd say, hey, you know, would you help me with my scene? And for some reason, I knew what to do. I don't know why I knew what to do, but I did. I do. 
I've got one more question for you. I know you, you have to do your audition here in a moment, but can you tell me about the time that you met Tom Waits, the other Tom Waits? <laughs> yes, I can tell you. Um, so there were several occasions. Uh, let me start with the first one. So, you know, you can imagine my whole life has been like, you know, um, it, it even started way back when I was still in acting school. It would be like, hey, um, did you write a song called Old 55 that's played on the radio? I'd be like, no. They'd say, well, there's this guy, Tom Waits, that has this song. I listened to us. It's a good song, you know. And, um, and then, you know, I started doing movies. I did The Warriors. I did this. And I'm sure people were saying to him, in fact, I know an actress named Diane Venora that went up to him once and said, you know, I know another Tom Waits. And she, he just, you know, shook his head. <laughs> like, yeah. And um, so I go to see, I think it was 1979. I go to see West Side Story on Broadway. And I see this strange looking guy in a leather jacket standing in the lobby at intermission. And my instinct takes over and I walk up to him and I go, excuse me, are, are you Tom Waits? And he shakes his head like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he just keeps his eyes on the floor, you know? And I go, so am I. <laughs> and he looks at me like, he goes, so you're the guy out there impersonating me. <laughs> <laughs> And we went out and had drinks that night at Jimmy Ray's and had so much fun and laughed and joked. And then I think what happened is a friend of his named Doc, if you look at one of, I forget which album it is, Heart Attack and Bond, I think you'll see Doc's name scribbled with a phone number next to it. And that was a good friend of his. His name was Doc. And anyway, Doc contacted me and he and I had gone out socially a few times and and then Tom was at a party in New York after American Buffalo, and we talked there. And I said, let's get together, you know. And he goes, okay, you know, here's my number. And this is where I'm staying. And uh, he was living downtown then. He said, I turned 30, you know, and I, I want I, everything I write sounds the same. I want to change my life. I got to, you know, I got to do something with my life. I packed everything up in California and moved out here. And... So we met at Broom Street Bar, and he came up to my loft, and I, he was gracious enough. I wasn't a very good musician at the time, I'll have to admit. I'm a lot better now. He listened to me play all of my songs. There must have been 10 of them, 15 of them. And he just sat there listening and listening and shaking his head up and down. And he liked one in particular, I remember. And then I asked him to uh, help me record a demo. And he came to the session and he pulled a big, gigantic, um, like drum, a, a VFW drum from the ceiling. And he played the drum on the tracks. And he just sat around listening. He did show the bass player what bass line to play. I remember that because the bass player couldn't play it. It was doubles. You know what doubles are? And the guy couldn't do it. So Tom took the bass from him and you know, he's a master musician. He's a brilliant guy. You know, again, I, I never see him. I, I had a play published once and they sent it to him and the check to him. 
And so his wife sends me to play with the check and she goes, dear Tom, I read your play. It's good. <laughs> and she goes, uh, lots of people stopped Tom in Blockbuster when we're looking for movies for the weekends for the kids. And they come up to him and they tell him how great he was in NYPD Blue. And rather than dispute it, he just stands there and shakes his head. And that's my Tom Waits deal. Mr. Waits, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure. My pleasure, Mike. All right, we are back, and we were talking about John Carpenter's The Thing. So before The Thing was The Thing, and before it was The Thing from Another World, it was Who Goes There, which was written by John W. Campbell back in 1938 for Astounding Magazine, of which he was an editor, I believe. And this is like prime sci-fi stuff. And people call it a short story, but I have to say, it's a pretty lengthy story and it gets really detailed with stuff and i found it to be just terrific there's an audio version of it out there if folks uh can get their hands on that it is a terrific listen there was a bbc radio version of it um just a couple years ago that i can't really say that i was too into because basically the creature attacks and they just react to it and they don't say like, Oh my God, this is happening. And so it's kind of, it's kind of awkward. You just hear the noises and you're like, I guess something's going on right now. But the original short story, very, very well done. And kind of going back to Jez Connolly, the way that he interpreted the story and kind of brought it to John Carpenter's movie, I thought was very interesting. This whole idea of McCready who is uh, in the short stories, six foot four, uh, you know, like 300 pound well, kind of guy. And they, they were totally evo- evoking Doc Savage in his description. They, they called him like bronzed and let's this bronze God. And he was a scientist as well. He wasn't just a helicopter pilot. Yeah. The, it, it really felt like they were, he was saying, yeah, you're ripping off Doc Savage. Come on. They called him bronze probably a dozen times at least. Well, and that's the thing. Cause you know, I, I read it as well. And for some reason, I just couldn't get into this novella. I mean, I I love the ideas that it was presenting, especially in the context of the time. But there was just something about the narrative style of John W. Campbell that just didn't speak to me. But still, I mean, it, it had such great ideas behind it. One of the things that I love that really we mentioned in our discussion of The Thing and was kind of alluded to in the Carpenter version, but made much more explicit in the novella, was the idea that when the thing is the thing, it thinks exactly like a human being. And it is not conscious of itself as being the thing. It is subconsciously conscious of it, but not on the surface level. And it's due to like a a telepathy that it has, that it's constantly pulling information out of other people's minds. It was a cool little conceit. Though the scientists get really savage when they discover things are the thing. They just descend on it with axes, which is like, wow, that's that's getting pretty savage there, guys. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to be a doctor of savagery to be that bad. Right? But all, yeah. every single scientist in the Antarctic were like action men. Well, you have to be. You have to be. But it's interesting because at that time, that was before all of the anxiety, the Cold War nuclear age anxiety about science. 
So you could have scientists that were action stars as well. So when you compare it to the thing from another world, there was that sort of adversarial relationship between the go-getting military guys and the scientists that, you know, wanted – that were saying, well, it's better if we all die than to let the thing escape. But in 1938, they were like, no, we can have our scientists be men of action. Yeah, the scientist in the thing from another world that kind of stand in for uh, – he looked almost like Lenin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that was deliberate because that was oh, the yeah. fakest beard I've seen. <laughs> and that kind of little Moscow hat that he's wearing and everything and just him, especially at the end when he runs up to the creature, he's just like, no, I want to talk. I want to talk. And just is, is imploring the creature, you know, you are so much smarter than we are. We, You come from another world. You know so much more than we do. And when James Arnest just knocks him out of the way with a big old burly paw, just like, fuck yeah, kill that egghead. I remembered the thing from another world being a lot more interesting than it, what it was like this last time that I watched it, I was just like, man, they, they talk a lot in this movie and the having the women at the camp and everything. I just, I mean, they had women in the camp in the 1938 story and it kind of worked. And there was a little bit of relationship between McCready and this other woman, but having the women at the camp in the 1951 version, I was just like, wow, this really feels like it's kind of shoved in here. This romance plot that's going on. And just, I don't know. It just, it felt kind of clunky to me, which I don't like to say because I remember liking this movie more, but watching it again recently, I was just like, eh, it just feels kind of stiff. That's a little bit where I'm at with the movie as well. I Sometimes I want to love it more than I do, and I'll always appreciate it um, for the ideas that it introduces. And I, I get that it's, you know, well made in many ways. And if nothing else, it affected John Carpenter to the extent that he wanted to remake it. And without it, we never would have gotten the 82 thing, which I love. So, I, I, you know, I have to have some amount of affection for it. I wonder how much of it has to do with the fact that, you know, I came to it later in life and had seen the Carpenter thing so many times that to go back and watch uh, such a different version. Um, and, you know, it's way more different from the Carpenter one than, say, the prequel is to its credit. But um, it just it couldn't possibly have the same kind of power that you know the 82 one does and i'm not trying to make that one-to-one like old movies don't work as well as newer ones because i can you know make the distinction between the original fly and the remake of the fly and they both work and for me yeah the thing from another world it's like i I get it maybe it's just not for me well and it was what is interesting for me when i watch it is the, the dialogue in it because you're used to films of this period being presented in a very certain kind of way, a very formal kind of way. And there are beats of it, especially in the, the back and forth between um, – oh, what's his name? The, um, the, the main guy who – that was uh, Kenneth Toby and Margaret Sheridan. That it's very evocative of Hawks's work on like His Girl Friday. So that kind of screwball dynamic. But the overlapping dialogue is what caught my attention the most because I'm not, I'm not used to f- movies from the 50s having overlapping dialogue. I, I always associate that more with like a you know, Robert Altman type of approach to dialogue. But the thing, there will be like four or five conversations that are going on all at the same time. 
Yeah, and there is a lot of snappy dialogue. I especially like the journalist character and his approach to things and just how he's trying to get the story out and and the way that he interacts with these people. And to me, I kind of wanted the journalist to be the hero of the story. I don't know, it's just because he's you know, one of the first people introduced and everything, but I wanted to follow him. And he even gets the last line in the film, which is, you know, the, the classic keep watching the skies line, but it just didn't feel like enough of him and really kind of dealing more with the, the you know, the dashing air force pilot type of guy. And I was just like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's our man of action and I kind of wanted more of this nebbish to be our man of action. Yeah. So much of the thing 1982 is there's action yes but so much of it is the thinking it goes back to that chess game and trying to outmaneuver you know just the the idea of coming up with the blood test and everything is such a uh, a big idea for the film i mean it's no coincidence that it's one of these major points of the movie so and it's the thing that people go back to it's the thing that was so much of that 1938 story you know them coming up with this blood serum test that fails and i'm so glad that they really cut that out of the 82 version by just having the blood be destroyed and then the the hot needle test later on i mean each one of these movies has this test that they come to but the 51 version felt like it was kind of lacking in that area as far as the the outsmarting the thing that said, they do have one of the best burn stunts ever. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, just the fact that they're throwing accelerant on a burning man, and you can <laughs> see it flying all over the room. It's like, how did nobody die when they were filming that? I don't get to start conversations off with this very often, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it anyway. So a few weeks ago, I was talking to Tom Atkins, <laughs> and um, – <laughs> We were talking, he uh, kind of broke from the interview at one point and was asking me if I had seen Stranger Things. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I just, I just watched the finale the night before I talked with him. And, you know, there are, in Stranger Things, there are all of these references to the thing, the 1982 version throughout it. You know, there's posters, there's, you know, scenes, all this kind of stuff. And it was hilarious because... As I'm watching, the they, they finally trick the creature into coming down this hallway, and they end up setting it on fire. And when they did that, I said to to my wife, I said, oh, that's an homage to the thing from another world. And then I'm talking with Atkins. He's like, did you watch that? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, isn't it hilarious at the end when they set up all this stuff and they set the creature on fire? I told my wife, that's just like the thing from another world. (laughs) (laughs) And she said to him, shut up. I'm trying to watch this show. Rewind it. I want to see that again. And I said, Things are just the same all over the place. They really are. We should all be indebted to Stranger Things because they do establish that if you're going to be macking on a lady, you can do worse than show her the thing. Get to watch how she reacts to that jump scare when Palmer's blood jumps out of the Petri dish. Best teacher ever. Are you guys familiar with that old Rankin-Bass kind of cartoon claymation thing called Santa Claus is Coming to Town with, uh, I think it's Fred Astaire, right? Yeah. Yeah. I get that sometimes, like that feeling like when we're watching Santa Claus is coming to town and we see like, you know, Santa Claus, uh, grows out his beard and you hear the little kids go, Oh, that's why he wears a beard. Or, you know, he's, he's got a reindeer and they're like, Oh, that's why he likes reindeer. And that is the thing that I constantly am hearing in my head when I watch a bad prequel. And that's what I was hearing 
throughout the, and I think my friend Josh uh, um, Hadley calls it a pre-make, and that's totally, it works completely. The pre-make of the thing, the thing 2011, where we go back to the Norwegian camp and we have those early days of what happened there. And throughout the whole thing, I just keep hearing those little kids go, oh, so that's how the split face man came out, or oh, that's how this happened. (laughs) And that's how he started going down chimneys. Well, and the thing is with that, the prequel or the pre-make or the thing 2011 is that from a certain perspective, I can admire the intention behind it because we were in that prime period that still continues to this day about everything that was a name property was getting remade. And Carpenter has spoke to this, too, in a recent interview that kind of got him into uh, the headlines. It was the same interview where he uh, apparently called uh, R- Rob Zombie a piece of shit. <laughs> Though if you listen into it in context, it was much more jokey. Anyway, we <laughs> don't need to go into that. But he said that you know remakes have that uh, power because they already have a space within the public consciousness. You don't have to sell the people on something new. They have a good idea of what they, what they can expect by coming into your movie. So a remake about the thing seemed inevitable. And I kind of liked the idea that it's like, all right, let's instead of doing a remake, we'll do something different. We'll add to the story. And, well, we can't really go with what's followed because, you know, that would be like we're trying to one-up Carpenter. Why don't we do with what came before? We got this Norwegian, Norwegian camp thing. And so much of it, you know, you're talking about, oh, this is how Santa Claus gets his beard. It felt like an extension of being a fan. It's like, well, all right, so if we're going to be doing a prequel, we want to make sure that it's right. And, you know, they, they talked about how there were thousands upon thousands of screenshots from the, the Carpenter film that they had printed out to make sure they got all of these details right. So I can understand the motivation behind it. But at the same time, this is a film that is completely under the shadow of the Carpenter film. In and of, it of itself can be viewed as a remake. And it never really manages to break out of it, despite all of the intentions of the filmmakers, from the special effects to the entire philosophy of the film, it never manages to break out, which is kind of sad because if you do are able to completely divorce uh, the Carpenter film from your mind and watch the 2011 thing, it's not terrible. It's a perfectly serviceable film for what it is, but it you can't help but uh, think of Carpenter's thing, and they do that deliberately. They keep evoking it, and it almost would have made sense for them to try to add a little bit of distance to it. That was the thing that frustrated me so much about it, you know, was this idea, okay, well, we're going to do a prequel, and again, I don't care about what happened first. That's not going to make necessarily, you know, this version better. I don't care about how... Anakin Skywalker meets Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, I don't need to know that, right? I don't give a shit where the stuff I love comes from. I just love the stuff I love. Okay, as you said, like, at least it's an attempt to tell a different story or or build on to the mythology. But then essentially what they do is an almost one-to-one remake of the original, as we had mentioned earlier, rather than the blood test scene, we get the piercing scene or whatever. The big change being like, well, now there's a girl. Okay, well, I guess we're being progressive and it's 2011, so uh, we won't have an all-male cast. But when you set out to just explain 
here's how Santa got his beard. Here's how Anakin and Obi-Wan met. The best you're going to do, to do is, is table setting, right? I mean, the best you're going to do is set up the thing that we already know and like more. And it's, it's the same, you know, I, I had read, as I mentioned earlier, Mike, that script that you sent for the, the thing returns, I think it's called and I have the same issues with that as I do with the thing prequel, which is the same issue that I have with Prometheus. It's like as soon as you try to tell the same story again, you run into the problem of, you know, the genius of Alien or the thing is there's no monster. And then all of a sudden, holy shit, there's a monster and we have to figure out how to deal with it. But now you're going to do another version where we have a bunch of characters standing around where there's no monster. And then holy shit, there's a monster. And the audience already knows all of that. We're just waiting around now for the characters to catch up to what we already know. And it essentially, I mean, I won't say it robs the, the greater film of its power, uh, because it it still exists and I can always just watch the Carpenter thing and I will never watch the 2011 thing again. But the idea of, oh, want to see all these events play out with a different group of people, you know, a few weeks earlier? Well, no, I don't, because what's great about the 82 one is the introduction of this alien organism into this world. And the same goes for alien, you know, with Prometheus. It's like, want to know what the space jockey is? No, actually, I don't. I'm okay with meeting this group of people and seeing what happens when an alien is introduced uh, into their world. And so the best the best case scenario is it's going to set up the 82 thing. But I don't need the 82 thing set up. I've seen it. It exists. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah, and the thing that gets me is that this thing 2011, it just follows those same narrative beats. So it just feels like it's a an echo of the the eighty two version. It's like it's, it's like, like the thing itself. It's this imitation of a real thing, right? Exactly. And it's like, okay, well, here's the moment when this is going to happen. Okay, now here's the moment where this is going to happen, and it just follows that same narrative beat for beat, and it just yeah, it doesn't add anything new to the story, and. Yeah, we we know what happens. We we can get enough from those few minutes at the Norwegian camp and with the Norwegians' videotapes that we don't necessarily need to have a full what is it, 120 minutes or something. You know, usually it should be 90 minutes, but probably more than that with this. And then the whole thing of uh, you know that they worked out a lot of practical effects for the movie, and then they ended up going with digital effects for it, and it's just like, uh. and then even the logic of the film itself kind of troubles me because we have moments where the 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 creature will break off into many many creatures and kind of become like little insect versions of hands and feet and these things kind of running around and then later on god mary elizabeth winstead goes down this tunnel and the thing can't break down and and go into the tunnel i was just like okay well that's kind of weird and this creature can change itself into anything so why is it too big for a tunnel i don't get that well they they kind of uh establish that or add some logic because when the the hands happen it's as a result of it getting cut apart so the idea that maybe it can't remove pieces of itself has to be cut off and once they're cut off they kind of animate much like uh in the 82 but yeah, so I, it doesn't make sense why something that's amorphous couldn't kind of squish itself into a smaller form. 
the crime of this, as you as you alluded to, was the what was done with the practical effects because it wasn't as it wasn't even something that they had conceived. They had built all of these things. They had gotten Tom Woodruff and Amalgamated Dynamics to build these things, and I've seen them in action through the uh, stuff that Amalgamated has put out over the years. And even under the harsh light of their studio, so not lit for film, not with any special or sound effects or anything, they look incredible. I mean, they look like they should they should look, you know, a film that is released some 30 years after the original that with the, all of the technology that we have and the fact that they decided to they shot all of them in action and then they decided to just CG them over. Because they weren't getting, they thought it looked too dated, that it looked too uh-huh. 80s. It's like, motherfucker, they looked incredible. They looked incredible under harsh lighting, and you're telling me you couldn't light them to make them look good on film? The hell's wrong with you? Even the ones without skin, like they had the, uh, they were putting together the effect of the two men kind of joining up by the head mm-hmm. effect. And just even without the skin, to see the, the, the animatronic inside of the skull and the way that the eyes were moving and everything, I was like, this really looks nice. I can't wait to see what this would look like. Nope. 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 You won't get to see that. I mean, I guess we kind of got a sense of it when they went on to do Harbinger Down, which was not a great film. Had great effects, but not a great film. Well, the other thing that that doesn't help the movie is that we're given, at least for me, like I'm no expert when it comes to Norwegian films, but we're given two actors that we recognize. I don't know if you guys recognize anybody other than Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Deeks from NCIS LA, <laughs> but that's it. So I kind of knew like, okay, well, she's going to survive kind of, and you know, or she's going to be the last, the last girl, the final girl. Um, but yeah, everybody else is just wearing a dead meat sign the whole time. So it's like, I don't care about these people, you know, that McCready wasn't our hero until, you know, so far into the thing. And all of these character actors are known to me, you know, the Richard Dysart. I mean, God, if he's not molesting little girls on an after school special, you know, I've seen him in a ton of other things as well. So just, you know, all these familiar faces, whereas with with uh, the thing 2011, it's like, yeah, I don't know any of you people except for these two. So they're probably going to last a, a, lo- a good long time. And we're going to see them at the very beginning of the film. And that's going to also clue us in that these are the ones that are going to last the longest. Yeah. I mean, it, it was funny going back and watching it now because at the time I didn't recognize them. But now through a combination of exploring more Scandinavian films and also watching American uh, television, there were a few more that I recognized. Like uh, uh, Christopher Hivjul, who was the guy with the big red beard. He's on Game of Thrones. And uh, Ur- Ulrich Thompson is on the um, uh, Cinemax show Banshee. Which, great, great show, by the way, if you've never seen it. One of the nice things that kind of happened over the last two years is that Quentin Tarantino finally decided that he was going to use an original score for one of his films. Um, After I had a bunch of millennial punks coming up and telling me that uh, Morricone had already written a bunch of music for Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bill, and I had to point out to them, no, this is all pre-existing music. Nothing uh, has been scored for this stuff. So when I heard that he was actually going to go to Morricone and, and have a real score written, I was super excited. So I didn't have to have that argument anymore. And then only to find out that, no, it's actually not a real score, kind of, but it's 
it is and it isn't. You know, it's uh, uh, the rejected score basically for the thing plus some original music that Morricone wrote. But it was kind of nice that Morricone was able to take that score that we had never heard before and utilize it for the hateful eight. And it's no small coincidence that we've got Kurt Russell in this snowbound situation with all of these people that he can't necessarily trust. So I thought it was a nice kind of, I think Tarantino calls it a meditation upon the thing Mm. set as a Western, which, you know, kind of goes back into what we were talking about with the whole idea of Hawks and, you know, using these Western tropes, but much like <laughs> much like the thing we get some exterior shots and that's great some all these beautiful panoramic shots really look fantastic in 70 millimeter but i don't know why he felt the need to shoot a movie that is 90% indoors and 70 millimeter because he can, <laughs> I guess that's why that's, I guess that's at, why. at this point with, with Tarantino, anytime he does anything, it's just, he, he is in the position that rarefied air of Hollywood where he can get away with anything. So if he wants to shoot on 70 mil, he's going to shoot on 70 mil. I don't think it necessarily adds anything to the movie. Other than, you know, he, there were some great sequences of, you know, these widescreen composition, again, speaking back to um, Carpenter and Carpenter's own uh, favoring of that sort of shot. There were a couple of those in the interior of Hateful Eight that was like, okay, I can see the point of this. But, yeah, no, I mean, if, if you're going to use 70, you'd want something, a bigger a thing to shoot, right? That feels like good logic. Well, the use of it for me, and and I agree. I mean, when I hear that he's doing a movie on seventy millimeter and it's a western, my mind immediately goes to big, wide open vistas and stuff like that. And so, to hear, no, 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 it's going to take place inside of a cabin in a snowstorm. It's like, well, that's almost masochistic. But okay, um, <laughs> but the the width of the frame and the way that he was able to use it, um, almost kind of at times, and I think this was. I think he was kind of vocal about this intention was almost as though it were staged as a play so that you're able to focus on rather than, you know, the usual um, movie camera that's sort of guiding our eye to this one thing that he wants us to see. He's allowing kind of these wider master shots where we could focus on different areas within the frame and possibly pick up some clues or at least character behavior um and so it is the kind of thing that maybe rewards multiple viewings but i mean i agree is it is it the best use of 70 millimeter no but i think for what it is i do feel like he kind of put it to interesting use yeah i finally watched it for the first time i i mean i i had the script when it was leaked uh, it had kept up with the story and everything, but for some reason, I just was not going to pay the Buku bucks to go see the roadshow version of it. And then I also had a hard time believing that there were certain theaters around here that were saying that they were showing it in 70 millimeter. And I'm like, there's no way that you guys retrofitted your projection booth to have a 70 millimeter machine because you're a bunch of money grubbing bastards. I'm talking about AMC theaters, of course. But so I'm not sure if they actually had it in 70 around here. I'm sure that they did someplace. I know that I had some friends that went to see it, but yeah, I just kind of stayed out of it and then finally watched it um, as it was meant to be seen on the small screen (laughs) recently. 
And yeah, I'm I'm not sure how often I'll go back to this one. And there were a lot of moments where I was just like, well, that was pretty self-indulgent. Like using the white stripes for about 30 seconds. I was like, what? Why? Who? Because he can. I guess you're right. I guess that's the answer to everything, really. Well, when it comes to Tarantino, I think so. <laughs> when he does use the Morricone music, it was nice. And it was good to have Kurt Russell in this situation. I was sad that he died a little early. Spoilers. But it was, uh, and especially the whole idea of, again, going back to every little bit of the thing can affect you. I think using the coffee was kind of a nice way to get that idea through as well poisoning the coffee you know i guess that was almost a little bit more prometheus i suppose thinking about it so there was that whole uh, sequence in um hateful eight where they were dealing with the door that you know they had to kick it so it's been a while since mm-hmm. i've seen it but that was a, that was a plot point and then i just recently watched thing from another world and that was that that whole joke line of shut the door i wonder if he lifted that if that was meant to be an homage i believe so I'm still waiting for somebody to take the Hateful Eight and recut it and cut it to um, compare it to that episode of The Rebel, which it takes a lot from. One guy kind of tried to, and it just didn't work very well, but I don't want to do it. I don't want to be the Tarantino guy, so somebody else needs to do it, and especially because I, I don't use the new software as well as some of these kids today, so somebody else needs to be the Tarantino guy, not just me. I'm just waiting for somebody to do like a 70-minute grindhouse cut of it. That would work. Cut it down, uh, call it something new, and then boom. This may be the wrong time to mention this, but I love The Hateful Eight. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed The Hateful Eight. I yeah. haven't watched it since I saw it in what may or may not have been a 70 millimeter roadhouse version. But uh, I remember enjoying it, even though I was in like the second row, which is not a good way to see that kind of movie. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's not good at all. No, it, I about three hours of just craning my neck and and basically uh, tennis matching it back and forth to try to catch everything. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that sucked. My AMC, and it was the second time I'd seen it. The first time I saw it, you know, the 70 millimeter roadshow was at a really nice old theater downtown. So it was a giant screen. Second time I saw it was at an AMC, Mike, and they did actually retrofit a projector and screen 70 millimeter film. Wow. In the AMC. The problem is they did it inside of, you know, it's a multiplex. It's a 30 screen multiplex. And they did it inside of one of their tiniest theaters. They have these theaters oh, in the center of the multiplex that are enormous cavernous airports. And for some reason, they chose the one that seats, I don't know, 70 people or something. So it's like, why are we watching actual projected 70 millimeter film? inside of a shoebox like who is making these decisions i don't know well in the way too that amcm i would be very surprised if it uh, was masked the correct way because they love just removing the mask and saying that they're showing things in imax and it's like come on guys (laughs) who do you think you're fooling (laughs) and i don't hold anything against you for liking the hateful eight i can see where it it has some appeal and stuff i just I was like, okay, this, it felt very long to me and I wish it had moved at a little faster pace. I mean, it really felt like kind of a throwback to Reservoir Dogs, the way that the dialogue was there, the one setting, all of this kind of stuff, but it just felt like it took a little too long to get to its destination. 
you know, going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, it is just so hard for me to believe that this was a flop for him. Mm-hmm. You know, just this should have paved the way. You know, it, people should have been just throwing rose petals at his feet after making a movie like this rather than, you know, putting him on the do not call list. Well, and it, it's, it's interesting because his failures – Yes, they've had a, a terrible effect on his career as far as his ability to get projects done and, you know, the money associated with it. And he he does seem a bit bitter about things for good reason in his old age. But at the same time, the failure of The Thing and then the follow-up failure of Big Trouble in Little China, a movie that I love, it did point him towards a more independent way of making films because then he was able to do movies like Prince of Darkness and They Live. Now, if he – those are films that could not exist, especially They Live, within a standard studio context. There would be about a million people looking to gut those movies and defang them. And if he hadn't been forced into the indies, we may not have gotten those movies. I think things are better now in terms of certain movies seeming ahead of their time and audiences being able to kind of pick up on that fact and perhaps embracing them in their day. But again, when you think that The Thing and Blade Runner were both released the same day and kind of fell flat financially, I just have to think that certain movies are just so ahead of their time, defy the will of the audience, you know, of the period. Um, It just, the thing was a movie that made audiences feel a way they didn't want to feel in 1982 in the summer of E.T. And same with Blade Runner. And it's introducing some ideas and even some technology, some techniques. Uh, They both are so sort of forward thinking and as a result have become timeless, you know, whereas films that were released even the same summer that were probably bigger hits financially are kind of, you know, they're trivia questions. They show up on cable. They're not movies that people are still obsessing over to this day the way we do with The Thing. All right. So I look forward to uh, seeing in 30 years as finally Prometheus will get its due. I have a friend who, (laughs) for all of its flaws, Mm. Prometheus is probably one of the most discussed movies. Oh, easily. And I think so much of it is people just trying to make fucking sense out of it. No, you can't. It's ahead of its time, man. Once, yeah, yeah. In 30 years, people are going to just willingly go up to the weird snake monster and pet it, despite being terrified of it moments before. That beat will make sense in 30 years. Yeah, it's an anti-narrative. <laughs> yes. Well, you see, the reason she didn't run sideways is because she's locked into a corporate thought that m- prevents her from thinking outside the box. <laughs> oh, one thousand think pieces just created. <laughs> <There you are. laughs> but that, that 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 sort of thing does fascinate me, and it's one of those why I try to be kind to certain films, even when I don't enjoy them, because I almost never know. What films do will get picked up? What films will resonate with people younger than me? And as as such, I try to hedge my bets a little bit by saying, "Well, it wasn't for me." But hey, if you liked it, what you know, go for it, man. Sure, sure. But and it, it's the more you read about old criticism, and the more you read, you know, come across old issues of like Starlog and their and their letter sections, you know, the the internet forums of their day, then you find a lot of the same arguments come up over and over again. You know, Mike, I think you alluded to it earlier, where you're talking about people that took the Carpenters thing to task for being a remake. And then even uh, a, a little while ago on my show, 
I covered um, it, the terror from beyond space. And people were writing into Starlog complaining that uh, Alien in 79 was just a ripoff of It. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of these uh, narratives, all of these dialogues amongst fan community, they're just repeats of the same goddamn conversation <laughs> that's been going on for 50 plus years. Well, it's funny to think that some of these other movies that were kind of critically crushed, you know, like uh, Grease 2, you know, now huge popular hit, you know, <laughs> or, or uh, Firefox from uh, Clint Eastwood. Right. You know, yeah, people people love that movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually, in, in reality, people have rediscovered Grease 2 and they love that movie now, even though I think they probably know that it's kind of shitty, hopefully. Yeah. And then something like Cat People gets a special edition from uh, Scream Factory, and people are still ignoring it. Released the same year as the thing, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you both for so much for coming on the show. I'm really glad that we were able to do this. And I can't believe that this is a special episode. I didn't even put this in the, the regular rotation. I don't know what the fuck I was smoking this month. So, But I want to know. So, Patrick, what is going on with uh, F This Movie these days? Um, nothing. We're just in the throes of uh, our scary movie month. So October is my favorite month of the year. So we're doing lots of horror movie stuff. But uh we're putting out a podcast every week at fthismovie.net and putting up articles every day. And uh, we're on Twitter at fthismovie. And El Goro, como esta usted? Bien, but I am very, very tired because October is also my very busy month where I got the weekly episodes of Talk Without Rhythm coming up, all of them horror-themed. And this is the seventh year that I've been doing my 31 Days of Halloween where I identify 31 horror movies that I've never seen. I watch them and I record a brief podcast every day of the month it's a lot of fun wow but it uh, does tend to really drain me out (laughs) but it's still a lot a lot of fun what are some of the winners that you've seen this month uh this month was an interesting challenge for me because in the past i would kind of do uh through throughout the ages so select a couple movies from each decade but this one uh came as a result of a conversation of again that repeated conversations that keep popping up where there seems to be a sense amongst the horror community that the 90s sucked for horror. So all of my movies came out in the 1990s. And uh, there have been some interesting discoveries, at at least for me. One of my uh, favorites was a film from uh, 1994. It's the film Dark Waters. Have either of you guys seen that? Yes. I haven't, but I know the title. I'm trying to remember who was in that. Uh, I forget who was in it as well. It was directed by uh, Mariano B- uh, Bino, and it's about a coven of nuns that are uh, keeping a Lovecraftian horror secret. Hmm. Very, very atmospheric and very, very effective. Uh, and that has probably been one of the best discoveries of this month so far. Very cool. That sounds like a really neat challenge. It is. And I have a lot of fun doing it, but it's it. Uh, I kind of don't have a life in October. It's it's just <laughs> I, I submerge myself in movies. I'll, I'll break out every once in a while to do the standard Midwest thing of going to a haunted house or a corn maze. But uh, I, I'm I'm getting uh, used to telling my friends, yeah, no, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing this weekend, Mike? Oh, I'm editing podcasts. <laughs> yes, all right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please go over to the 
website, projection-booth.com, where I will have links to F This Movie and Talk Without Rhythm, as well as links over to the iTunes uh, page for the Projection Booth, where you can rate and review the show. And I'm sure that you can subscribe to these fine podcasts as well. Or you can go over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash projectionbooth, where you can donate to the show. Every rating, every review, every donation helps the Projection Booth take over the world. So I think we should just wait here a while and see what happens.
nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.